Carl Wallace. The old cheers, Will McGaff. Happy Friday, buddy. Yeah. Happy you know, Friday. Kind of turned into a crazy afternoon. It's been a crazy day for both of us, I think. Yeah. That's what I love about this town. There are so many entrepreneurs and people who work manual jobs. Mm-hmm. It's really hard work, sweat labor, sweat equity, all this stuff on your feet. But at the end of the day, you sit down with a beer <laughs> and it just all somehow feels worth it. And everything's okay. Well, cheers yeah. to it. Just hoping you moved things forward a little bit during the day, yes. you know? I feel like we move forward often, but a lot of times you feel like you're moving sideways. Do you feel that way? Do you end each day optimistically? I do my best to. Right. Um, do you have a strategy involved in that? I mean, one day at a time. That's what I tell myself every day. Yeah. It's just one day at a time. I can and do that most days, but some days it'll come 10 o'clock and I just can't let something go and I just get anxiety. Well, yeah, that happens to too. Or I'm working through a problem mm-hmm. and then... I'm thinking about it, thinking about it all night, and I don't quite get the solution that I want. Yep. I know, I trust in myself that I'll wake up the next day. I always tell myself, just get a good night's sleep. Yep. Whenever you're feeling stressed or whatever ails you, just get a good night's sleep, have another go at it in the morning. You know, you strike out, 100%. Okay, next at bat, just come back refreshed, refocus. Yep. Easier said than done, of course. Yes. And so some nights I find myself 10 o'clock just not being able to let it go, and I'm thinking, would it make me feel better to get a good night's sleep or just stay up all night working? <laughs> I, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying. Like this house, like I just bought this house. And yeah, congratulations, so, by the way. Thank you. It's yeah. amazing to be recording here and be hanging yeah. out here. It's really cute, dude. Yeah. You did a great job. It's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be good in the long run. But like I just had my electrical panel redone that's one thing like i'm not real comfortable with just about everything else i'm good with but as far as the full physical panel changing out breakers rerouting or that like not fully my key well, you um, don't want to get electrocuted well yeah that you can't but, come back from that yeah. yeah um but like during the final inspection they had to cut my dryer cord and um because it was just like loose cable running around the outside of the house plop, poked through the wall through the wall okay. and so uh yeah spent the other night redoing all that stuff and they just cut it because it wouldn't it wouldn't pass inspection yeah so the solution is just just cut it and leave it out of the box yep and then we'll close yep and then we're good oh interesting yep Um, they don't require you to fix it or make it right well if it's not there then it doesn't exist fair enough i guess you could have gone back to the the seller and said hey i need this to be fixed in order to go through but yeah oh this yeah this was all post all that but so you feel very comfortable remodeling everything Oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Cause like, so like my background, like growing up, um, I grew up out in whitewater, Colorado and like my dad, he worked us pretty hard growing up. It was me and my full sister. I've got two much older half siblings, but they were out of the house. And so me and my sister, we would spend a lot of time just working for my dad. We grew up on 40 acres, Forty uh, acres. Forty acres. Yeah, what and, is in Whitewater? <laughs> I mean, Whitewater Town proper. There's a post office and a old fruit stand and okay. a retired uh, motel that no one is ever at. But I grew up a uh, little ways outside of Whitewater, up Canna Creek Road, and so we grew up with Canna Creek running through our property. Beautiful piece of piece of land that I totally took for granted growing up in just because oh, yeah. we were we were working all the time and you saw it as chores 100 percent. yeah yep but all of my friends and everything through 
elementary school, middle school, high school. It's like my place was where everyone wanted to come hang out because we could do whatever we wanted. You're off the grid. Off yeah. the grid. Off the radar. We would yeah. go shoot guns on the property, go roll boulders down the hill. And a really good day for us was getting five gallons of gasoline and lighting whatever we could on fire and try not to burn the place down. Yeah, but that's yeah. a real childhood. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't have those childhoods anymore. Maybe oh. out here, but I grew up back east, you know, big yeah. city, Philly, and it is not that way anymore. Right. Kids are barely allowed to go outside. The, the, parent, the parental paranoia is so high. Yeah. Yeah, I went to this conference. Um, when was this? It was like four years ago. And it was talking about just ways to get kids outside and how we spend time with students exposing them to the outdoors and getting people interested in spending time in nature. And one of the metrics that they presented to us was the amount of time that kids nowadays spend with unsupervised free time outside. And the average amount of time for someone in middle school is less than seven minutes a day. No kidding. Yep. Outside, outside. And so that includes summertime, wintertime, springtime, fall. And it's like, for me growing up, it's like you go home and you put on your play clothes. We would have play clothes and you had your nice clothes for school. So you put on your play clothes that you can just trash and we would be outside till dark. Like, that's what you do. Yeah. And you had the property to do it, too. Yeah. Even I grew up in a suburban neighborhood, and mine was slightly the same way. We would meet up after school to play street hockey or to, at night, play jailbreak or build Mm -hmm. a fort or whatever. But we were always going outside, riding bikes, unsupervised. And the way we would know to come home was either come home at dark or... My, my neighbor, whose dad was a very large man, would just scream at the top of his lungs, you know, his kid's name. And at that point, that was the signal. You for had everybody. your own street alarm. It was. So, so, yeah. yeah. He would sound the alarm like everyone come home. But, yeah, we were fine. We were outside for hours a day unsupervised. Oh, yeah. And nowadays. So what, what do you think is what is your reasoning behind that? Do you think it's just more distraught? Because we had video games and I, I liked video games. I mm-hmm. liked TV. But it was more of a it wasn't something I leaned on. Right. When I first started growing up, when I was younger, it was like Friday night was movie night. Yep. So we got to do that. Um, yep. And, you know, we'd watch a little bit of TV throughout the week. Of course, if a new video game was out, I would want to do it. But I would say, generally speaking, five days out of seven, I'm outside after school doing stuff. Oh, yeah. And now it's probably the reverse. Right. It's a specialty to go outside for the minute. What do you, you yeah. think is the reasoning? I mean, I think there's like, it's a hugely multifaceted issue, like where I think a big thing that's happening is just exposure to the internet you know we lived through that change we were lucky enough to have no worldwide access in our pocket while growing up but then post high school college that's where we gained that access to things so we would i know for me personally like i would find myself spending more time online more time on my phone doing things of that sort just because it was there and accessible. If it's not accessible, you're not going to do it. And so with kids nowadays, like my mom, she's a secretary at an elementary school and she's got six year olds that have iPhones and six years old, six years old with an iPhone. And they probably know how to use it better than we do. Absolutely. I was just going to say, do they know how to use it? But yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. And so like, have. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, six years old. Like, are you even in kindergarten, kindergarten first grade. Oh yeah, first God, graders with man. iPhones. That's crazy. And so 
Like, I think that's one part of it. And then I think the second part, which like also stems from that access to information is parents having access to that information. Um, so parents getting more fearful of what their kids are doing outside, um, being more afraid to just let kids free roam. Because the reading in the news, kid exactly. murdered after school, yeah. kid kidnapped, so the paranoia grows. Yeah, because like, I mean, we know the media thrives off of extremism. You and, don't say. Oh, oh, yeah. It's like, how's that work? Yeah, I was actually, <laughs> it's funny you say that. I was talking to my cousin the other day who uh, lives back east, and he had no idea where I lived. We're catching up, and I'm like, yeah, I'm in western Colorado, and I'm kind of, ex he's like, so what are the politics out there? Isn't it like super conservative and all this stuff? I'm like, yeah, it's conservative. And he's asking me about it, and he's like, well, I don't know, man. I just see on the news, like, the conservatives are crazy. I'm like, no, dude, you're seeing, like, the 1% of the conservatives and the 1% of the liberals on the, on the news that are right. crazy. And that's being portrayed as an everyday occurrence or yeah. the everyday situation, just like the kid getting kidnapped or the shark attack. Exactly. I read this great book once. It was called How Risky Is It Really? And okay. it talked about the way humans analyze risk. Our main problem is that we are very afraid of things that are unlikely to happen to us, yeah. such as a shark attack or a plane crash. And we are not afraid of things that are very likely to happen to us that happen less dramatically and slowly. For example, right. someone will stand on the beach and be like, I'm not getting in the water. I don't want to get eaten by a shark while they're smoking a cigarette. Right. Because it's not as dramatic, but smoking cigarettes are going to kill you. Uh, right. Eating cheeseburgers and eating horribly are going to kill you, but it's a slow burn. Yeah. So we're not really afraid of it in the same way. Right. And so I think, to your point, the internet has made this risk assessment even more difficult because we're inundated with all these kind of stories that seem like they're the norm, but it's really just the media trying to sell something to you or grab your dramatic totally. attention. Yeah, because it's just that response to immediacy like right. here's what the immediate potential deficit could be if you do x if you stay outside after dark x will happen to you it's or like, it could happen but people assume that it will happen right and so but i wonder i don't know i'm making i'm editorializing here because i obviously have a viewpoint on it but i wonder if they realize that maybe they're setting their kids back even worse by withholding them those experiences out right. of caution um, yeah. because I just had my, my whole family come out. My sister has four kids mm -hmm. and th the three oldest ones are boys, eight, six, and four, and then a newborn girl, God bless her. But <laughs> they have never really, they've been outside of DC, but not nowhere like Colorado. And so I was excited to have them out, but I was also kind of worried because they're city boys. You know, they'll play in the backyard a little bit, but to give you some perspective, you know, the three, four-year-old has an iPad. So it's, yeah. they are very much city technology kids. Mm -hmm. And I took them on the rim trail hike. Okay. And I'm thinking, wow, they're going to love this. It's yeah. pretty short and easy. And when they get to the top, they're going to be seeing something they have never seen before. Did you make it like a quarter of the way? We made it the whole way up. Okay, um, nice. But the kids were not that impressed as I had want them to be. Um, I will say they were very cute. Towards the end, they really got into the spirit of finding rocks that look like dinosaur fossils yeah. and trying to remember them. But in the beginning, it was hilarious because they didn't really get the concept of hiking. Mm -hmm. They saw it more. I'm like, all right, guys, we're just here for to relax. Just take your time. Let's, it's peaceful. Enjoy. 
and they're like, yeah, yeah, race you to the top. I'm going to beat you. Right. They, they just wanted to run ahead. They wanted to climb on the biggest boulders and jump off of them, yep. which I'm like, all right, that's kind of cool. But their father did not like that so Very much. risk adverse. Very risk averse. <laughs> himself never be. He was wearing loafers, like boat shoes. Oh, perfect. Hike. Yeah. Um, He's um, got his Sperry's for his yacht club. and Yeah. I'm, I said, dude, we wear the same size. Do you want to borrow some boots? Oh, no, I'll be fine. Okay. Yep. Well, yep. whatever. But he was a little paranoid. So anytime the boys would get within 10 feet of a cliff or a, a big rock, mm -hmm. he would just scream like, Cooper, what yeah. are you doing? I'm like, ah, okay, guys. Nobody's really getting the point to relax here. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I'm, what my, the point I'm making is that although eventually they kind of enjoyed it, I asked the eight-year-old at the top. I said, Cooper, what do you think of this view? Isn't it amazing? And he's like, oh, I'm kind of bored. Yeah. And it just kind of opened to me talking with people afterwards. I think the technology, I'm not saying it does something negative to their brain, but it exposes them to something that, cannot be replicated elsewhere right there's so much stimulation and stuff going on for them mm -hmm. like they're glued to it and you just can't a beautiful view just can't replicate it no because it's not yeah. stimulating in the same way right you you're not well there's i don't know because like i'm thinking about just like active participate active participation in something and whereas like you and I, like we both view hiking somewhere, like you are actively participating in the nature that's around you. Like that's what you're doing. That's the task. And whereas anymore, it's like you go out to dinner with somebody and they're always checking their phone. You're with a kid out hiking and all they want is their phone. They want some sort of alternate task involved. They, it can't be just, oh, we're going to dinner to have dinner. We're going to go to dinner so that you can sit there on your phone while we eat. It's, it's like there's it's always something. Now. Exactly. Yeah, it's the babysitter. And I think yeah. when we were growing up, sending us outside was the babysitter. Oh, 100%. It's like parents are like, all right, get out of the house. Like, yeah. I'm tired of you. Right. Yeah. Go away. space. Yeah. But now you don't. You can minimize the risk, quote unquote, yeah. by saying, okay, stay inside, but go in this room and go on your iPad. Yeah. And just, they, you won't hear from them for hours, right. right? And it's that, like, level of comfortability, too. It's like we, as a species, have become so comfortable with the idea of comfort. Like, we rarely experience high temperature swings in our life. Like, you're, you wake up in a bed, and it's 65 degrees, and then you go to your car that has air conditioning, and then you go to work where it's 65 degrees, and then you get back into your car and then you come home and go to bed and it's 65 degrees the whole day in the middle of winter or in the middle of a 105 degree summer you're 65 degrees the whole time yeah we're kind of weak we're very weak well that but that's why i love trekking and backpacking because to me it exposes you to those hardships yeah right when you're doing a five mile backpack you're gonna have highs and lows and it's gonna be mm -hmm. annoying it's like i don't feel like cooking but well yeah. you have to right and it kind of teaches you to go through that rhythm and just get used to being uncomfortable in certain ways right travel which we're definitely going to talk about i was bit. just going to say uh, we're both very very attuned in thing, that yeah right? travel is a very glorious thing when shown on instagram yeah but when you're on the road for a long time you yeah. got to embrace the suck, man. Oh, like, there's tons of suck. Of most of it suck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nowadays for sure. Yeah. Getting on the airplanes and just mm -hmm. the modern day travel. Yep. Um, and talk about the phone has revolutionized that too. Right. I felt like when even when I started traveling 15 years ago for work, 
more often than not, I would have a conversation with the person next to me on the flight. Right. I was frequenting more airport bars at the time, so I would always kind of meet someone, and mm -hmm. it's like your buddy for the day. And you get yeah. to know him so well, you're like, wait, should I ask this guy for his number so we can keep in touch? And I'm like, yeah. we're at an airport bar, whatever. You know, just, part of just my, uh, let it go, move on. Part but, of my graduate thesis was talking about drinking at airport bars. Really? And how important it is for travel. All right, you got to lay it on. <laughs> Tell us your thesis. Um, so I... I guess my like educational background, like I did my under undergraduate degree at um, Colorado Mesa here in Grand Junction, um, studied studio art and mathematics. So kind of a fun blend of left brain, right brain things going on. And then got into a grad program up at University of Oregon for studio art and painting and sculpture and learned very quickly that the grad program was not something that I probably should have pursued. Like why not? I've, just, I don't know, man, the hoity-toitiness of the art world. Mm. Like, it's such yeah, an elitist like an old buck. When I found out you were a fine arts <laughs> person, and I actually, unbeknownst to me, I, I just went to a gallery one night with Julia, and there you are showing right. a painting. I'm like, what the hell is this going on? I would have never guessed that in a million years. Right, and we'd known each other for like a year and a half before yeah. then. Yeah, you had never mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. It's like my little sleeper skill set that I have that nobody knows about. But yeah, I've got a master's in fine art and painting. And part of my graduate thesis was we had the ability to either choose like a full academic thesis where we're talking about relationship of whatever theory to our art and how it fits into the contemporary art world. Or we could do kind of an experimental writing piece that was loosely based on what we were creating. And everything that I was pursuing at the time was talking about human involvement and connection to nature and how limited it has become what part. year was this this was 2017 okay so pretty recent yeah right. so within that i chose to do the latter like more unique writing piece and so my thesis was just this series of little short stories where i was talking about kind of different instances of things that like in nature or just in travels and things that I found interesting. And one of the things I wrote about was talking about seeing people drink in bars in airports and how it's this weird kind of purgatory for everyone that's there. And it's this short term social interaction, but some of the deepest interactions I've ever had with people, because you know, it's a f like kind of fleeting interaction. You're never going to see this person again. They don't care what you tell them. You don't care what, they tell you and so some of these really intimate conversations happen and it's just a great time to observe like the dads and the moms that have 14 kids that are trying to travel from point a to point b and they're just lost deer in the headlights trying to get around an airport so it's a nice time just to kick back watch what's going on observe and just really look at social behavior and so like airport bars it's just such a fascinating place for me. I love it, man. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the worst part of the airport bar is the price. You're oh, 100%. 10 bucks a beer or whatever. Yeah. But I agree. I think you hit it on. It's both people. Well, one, you have something in common. You're both right. going somewhere. So it's an easy icebreaker. Mm -hmm. Hey, where are you going? And two, nobody's expecting anything. It's just no. like a random interaction. So it's just kind of like you're able to get into those more deep conversations because there's no nervousness or preconceived There's no notion. pressure on Which, anything. Now that you say it, what is the difference between an airport bar and a regular bar? 
because when you go to a regular bar, you might be nervous about approaching someone right. or I guess if you're actually sitting at the bar, it's easy, but there's just something about being at the airport yeah. that makes Well, because it... like, I don't know, for, I would say most people, the airport bar isn't the destination. Fair like enough. that's not what you're trying to do with your day is spend it at the airport bar. Fair you just kind of have to. So it's almost this forced circumstance. <laughs> um, whereas like if you're choosing to go to a local bar, like that's the choice and the bar is the destination. So there's already this kind of expectation placed on the experience that you're going to have at your local bar. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. Expectations, yeah. in my opinion, are the devil of everything. 100%. Especially travel. Yes. Social media, you mentioned that. Nature, I'm curious if you can expand upon that because to me what I see is that people with nature or just travel sites, they'll see a picture on Instagram and then they don't say, oh, I want to go check this out. They say, I want to go see that. Exactly. And that is exactly how it's presented in the picture. And yep. that's what they expect to see. Yep. But that's not nature. Sometimes yep. it's cloudy in nature. And that's not the world. And oh, yeah. most of the times, as you know, as a well-traveled man, you see these beautiful sights and these beautiful pictures of them. And then when you actually get there, there's like a line of 100 people behind that oh, person 100%. waiting to take the picture. It or smells it like weird. The one time it and, was clear. Yeah. And it's just all this kind of fake presentation of, of travel. Oh, yeah. And it's like everything like you see on social media like it's all manicured it's all it's whatever those people want you to see like they're not going to show you the three days that they had in bangladesh where they had the shits totally. like that's not going to be documented <laughs> and should so be. it totally should be yeah and so like i kind of have stopped using or like putting anything on social media like i'm still like a lurker like i'll look at other people's stuff and do whatever but i just don't participate in putting anything of my own on and it's like if you care and if you know me like you'll know what's going on in my life yeah but like, that's what makes you kind of cool and interesting because <laughs> having known you now yeah there is so much to you and you seem like a very confident person that you don't feel the need to throw it out there to share it and oh, yeah. get the reinforcement on it yeah and nothing against people that do that sometimes people just like to share things i get right. it i do it too but I think that's just very interesting about you because I can tell you're a confident guy. I try to be, you know, and <laughs> fake uh, it till you make it, right? Well, that's <laughs> so. Yeah, tell us more about your life because I feel like yeah. that's been your motto your right. your whole life. What, what did you do after you went to fine arts? Yeah, I've kind of been all over the place. So, like, because I just saw a raft in your backyard. Yeah. I'm like, so oh, I gonna, didn't know you had a raft. We're gonna backtrack a bit. So, in growing up, I was big time on the river. My dad was a river guide down in the Grand Canyon for a long time. My brother was a guide. So I kind of grew up around one of the local boatyards in Grand Junction called Adventure Bound. And growing up around there, was in with all the guides, spent a lot of river time. I, was, uh, I would go on some of my dad's trips as a swamper. So a, sw that mean? a swamper is basically just like an extra hand on a trip. You're a not swamper. Yes. Cool. Um, I'm not exactly sure where that term came from. Was this through the Grand Canyon you went? Uh, no. So this was local stuff, mostly Colorado, Green River, in Western Colorado, Eastern Utah, Northern Colorado. And so spent a ton of time on the river growing up. And then once I was out of high school, because to be a guide, you have to be 18 um, in order to row people down the river. And so as soon as I was able to guide, I went to Adventure Bound, talked to Tom. Tom was the owner of Adventure Bound. And told him like hey i want to be a guide and 
He's like, cool, you've been around here long enough. And since I had so much back experience, right off the bat, he put me into like really consequential situations. One of those being Cataract Canyon. And I started in 2011, which was a really high water year in the valley. Cataract Canyon ended up peaking at like 86,000 CFS that year. So cubic feet per second. Is that so, a lot? So if, if you okay. imagine a basketball, like a basketball is roughly one cubic foot. Okay. And so now if you imagine 86,000 basketballs and they're, those 86,000 basketballs pass by you in one second. One and then second? the next second, there's 86,000 more basketballs. Wow. Um, so That's it was a, a very, very big water year for the Colorado. We had uh, another guide that blew out his knee on a trip prior. And we had this whiteboard where Tom would write who's going to be the guide on whatever trip's coming up next. And I had just gotten off a trip, came into the boatyard. And I went and checked the board and the board had my name on a high water cataract trip and I was rowing a boat. And so I was like, fuck, like this is, I don't think I'm ready for this. And, but you didn't say that to him. I'm guessing. Oh no, yeah. you, you can't like you, Tom says all, and that's what's fake going. It you make and it. I'm ready. So you fake it till you make it. Yeah. And so ended up on that trip. Didn't flip, had great runs and like some of the waves down there, like it's unfathomable to like think about, but there's waves that are 30 feet tall really? down there. Where is Cataract Canyon? So Cataract, it's over in Utah. It's down below where the Green River and the Colorado River confluence in the heart of Canyonlands National Park. Oh, okay. It's in Canyonlands. So it's right in the middle of Canyonlands. Cataract starts right after that confluence point. Okay. It's about 17 miles of whitewater once you're in it. And during peak runoff, it's considered some of the biggest whitewater in North America, not just the U.S., but North America as a whole, so including Canada, everything. And so there's some pretty major stuff down there. And so I was 19 years old, Jesus, got my boat, and was handed the reins of some really big water and really big responsibility at that age. How'd you do? Did Dish still great. Here. Still here. <laughs> and still, knock on wood, haven't flipped. You've never flipped? Never flipped. Never? Never. Is that, co- is that That's... common to never flip? No. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been just day rafting and we flip all the time. I don't know if they yeah. do that on purpose or what. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've got just over 10,000 river miles under my belt at this 10, point. 10,000 river miles. Yeah. Is a river mile different than a regular mile? Uh, just a mile. Okay. Yep. Yeah but we call them river miles to feel special. 10,000. Yeah. So back and forth across the U S three times, roughly. Wow. Is the distance. So, okay. So when you told me earlier that you were going on this trip in a couple of yeah. weeks and you're like, yeah, it's going to be big water, but we'll be fine. So you were just downplaying it as usual. <laughs> so you're actually very qualified to take this trip. It's with a very good group of people and very good support crew and everyone that is on that trip or X. Well, most of the trip, or ex-Adventure Bound guides that I used to run with. Is it going to be high there, too? Where are you going? It's on the Yampa. The Yampa. So By steamboat. um, Yeah. So it starts up by steamboat, and then we put it in a place called Deer Lodge. And I think it's like 72, 76 miles or something that we're running. Cool. i got to imagine everywhere is high water right now. It's it's a good year. Yeah. It's not as big as the 2011 year, but 
But I it's thought high water better. with rafting would actually doesn't lower water create more shape in the rapids? It depends on where you're at. Okay. Um, some places like you run out of water, it gets super technical. Um, so you're dodging rocks and worried about getting your boat stuck. Whereas some places lower water, it makes it easier. And then same thing with high water. Sometimes high water makes it easier. Sometimes it just gets big. It just varies on the stretch that you're on. And yeah, cool. I went on a rafting trip once to the Pacuare in okay. Costa Rica. Yep. And it was super high water. Yeah. So we buzzed through it in maybe 45 minutes. Like <laughs> it was supposed to be a half day trip and yeah. it was a little longer than 45 minutes. But yeah, it just was so fast. The river had no shape. Oh, yeah. And the guides were like, yeah, sorry. You just. Sorry. You it's know, all nothing, washed out. Nothing to do. But some places really benefit from high water. Yeah. What's the, um, the river in West Virginia that only runs in the fall? <laughs> it's. Um, uh. I'll have to look it up, but yeah. my one of my friends in Hawaii, he just flies out there every. Mm. I think it's October, mm. and, it, and it's because they release a, a dam. Okay. And it's only run, but it's apparently yeah. a famous river. I thought you would know. Uh, I was, I'm trying to think. The Gully, the Green. The Gully. The Gully. Yeah, that's the there one. There we go. Yeah. Yep. Have you done that one? <laughs> haven't done the Gully. Okay. I haven't done like any eastern rivers really. Okay. Mostly western desert rivers. Any so, reason for that, or just no time over there? Okay. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, one thing I'm very excited for with the Yampa is it's the second most difficult trip in the U.S. to obtain a permit for, outside of the Grand being Canyon. First. Okay. Yep. So the Grand Canyon, the Yampa, and then the Middle Fork of the Salmon. Why is the Yampa three. so? Uh, it's a it's just a special place. It's the last free flowing river in Colorado, so it's undammed. Everything else in Colorado has some kind of dam on it. It's wild. It's whatever it decides to do is what it's going to do. There's no control on it. Really? There's yep. only one free-flowing river in Colorado. Yep. And that is the Yampa. That blows my mind. Yeah. And so, like, I guess nice segue just looping back to what we were talking about is, like, with kids and, like, expectations of, like, going places and being comfortable with being comfortable. It's, like, people don't spend time being uncomfortable. And so being able to spend time on these rivers and – um, have those times where it's like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing right now, but we have to do it. There's one way down and that's downstream. Like you just, you just do it. You pull yourself up and keep moving forward. Did that experience give you confidence in other areas of life? hundred percent. I think my time spent on the river and the amount of time that I have, like it's very cliche like all of those things about river and river life is you always move forward, always downstream and there's <laughs> tough turmoil ahead, but you have to move through and it'll be behind you someday. Like <laughs> it's so applicable and it's a cliche for a reason because like it's, that's the truth. Yeah. Definitely has applied to everything in my life as far as work, as far as occupation, as far as like relationship, anything in my life, it's like, you know, you're going to, get through it eventually yeah well and you're special in that sense mate i mean not everyone has that yeah and i make assumptions about someone like you when i meet them who i see is doing a lot of different things and mm -hmm. succeeding in all of them yep. we're going to get into i mean you make cider for talbots people know that yep. now you're making wine you've never done that before but right? here you are taking on this <laughs> new thing so you seem like a guy that's constantly taking new challenges yeah and people that do that are able to have this self-confidence right but it doesn't mean they don't experience fear. It doesn't yeah. mean they don't meet failure. Yeah. It just means they have learned to push through and to overcome right. and not be beat back by it and not right. be discouraged by it. Yeah. Because 
ask any successful person. They all, they all fail. Yeah. But they're successful because they push through it. And that's, that's not everyone has that. Yeah. And so like with that river time and also paired with all of my time spent in the art world, like going to school for five years for an art degree that I hardly use anymore. But like those experiences, like especially with the art world, is being told like this is terrible, what you're making is awful. Make me something else. Make another, and just keep making things until you get it right. Your teachers would say that to you. Oh yeah, like really? the worst critique I ever had, which I love. Um, like I was struggling when I first got into grad school, like no idea what I was doing, and making terrible artwork. Um, and we would have these big group critiques and so all of my classmates and my cohort um i had like 18 people in my studio a couple of the department advisors they're in my studio going through my work with me and i'm you know trying to bs my way through what i'm making and make it sound like i'm making artwork and know what i'm talking about and they all saw straight through it of course and towards the end of this critique one of the advisors, he latched on to this pile of stuff that I had in the corner of my studio. And he goes over and starts like rummaging through this pile of papers and like these old like oak tree rounds that I had cut down and had stacked up in the corner. And it was just a mess. And he just latched onto it. And he's like, Merle, this thing, this is incredible. Like you have to tell me what's going on here. And it was like all these like notes and things that just thrown in a pile and I looked at him like Chris like this is this is my trash pile (laughs) and he's like uh okay so this this critiques over he like ushers everyone else out like all the other students and then he comes up to me and he's like Merle it is my strong recommendation that you go find some really good mushrooms and go spend a couple days in the forest what (laughs) are you serious your professor said this to you (laughs) yeah and so uh, yes thank yeah. you uh, if you say so okay yeah, i guess i'll try that <laughs> you want to come or right what? Uh, what did he what did he what was his intention with that um just me needing some time to like find myself and like figure out what i'm doing and finding a direction and what i'm trying to communicate in my work and so that's like part of that reason i was kind of saying that grad school wasn't really the best thing for me was one thing I really learned through that grad school experience was that like I am a very good support mechanism for systems that are already in place. So like with working for Talbots with all that time on the river with stepping into like other people's construction projects, like whatever's happening, like labeling kombucha bottles, labeling kombucha (laughs) bottles. Yeah. Um, But like, I'm very good at, seeing the system that's in place, figuring out the problems that are in that system and finding efficiencies and making that system better. But as far as like developing my own system from ground zero, not that good at it. Like I, I require some sort of like external direction. Really? Yeah. For a lot of things. Well, do you think what he said is true about art that you have to have, because I don't understand that. If you're in a fine arts program, it seems like they were trying to tell you what you were doing was wrong, but isn't the oh, whole yeah. point of art to just express whatever it is you want to express? Um, I think there's components of it that are 
focused around expression. But I think what I've learned is that art is mostly based in questions. Two questions in particular. One of them being questioning something about the world. Why is the sky blue? Why do people do the things they do? Why are lines at Chick-fil-A so long? Looking at something that's already in place and asking a question about that and then commuting or finding a way to communicate that question to people. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be an answer or anything explaining the situation. It's just questioning something that's already there. And then the other thing would be finding a way to answer a question that exists. That can be through going back to why is the sky blue? Like you're answering that question through making thousands of blue paintings through doing this repetition of like, what is blue looking into research on the color blue and going down that rabbit hole and maybe eventually discovering something that will communicate that answer to someone that has that same question of why is the sky blue? Interesting. And see, to me, that seems more science-based than art-based because now you're trying to say, okay, here's my hypothesis or my question and then how to, through my work, discover some kind of answer to that. That seems more science. And that's part of the big question or the big problem that I have with art is that some of it to me is very science-based and some of it is very expressive. And so how can you really denote if, or put a metric on, is this expression good? Is this answer to a analogous question good? Who defines what's good? Well, that's the thing. Art is subjective. So it's in the eye of the beholder or whatever, but teachers are there to assert their expertise so they're gonna tell you what's good or bad and Mm -hmm. that's the way you get your grade or so forth and that makes sense i love going to art museums yeah i okay so this painting you have well maybe not that one there but i'm always very impressed by people that can do landscapes and Mm -hmm. nature because it almost looks like a photograph and when i look at it i'm like i cannot paint that that is a masterpiece but then i don't know the the correct terms i guess more impressionist art Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm like, if I painted that by seemingly what they did is just throwing colors onto the palette at random, and I gave it to my mom, would she be like, wow, Will, what a masterpiece? Or would she be like, "Uh, okay, Will, cool, I'm going to just put this over here, Mm -hmm. because a lot of it means nothing to me. And it seems like it has no direction, which I guess is I'm talking myself into what you're just telling me. Because when it has a direction as the person looking at it, you can appreciate it more versus something that's just totally splatter random. But- And so like, I guess going back to the whole question thing, like, because you were just recognizing like you, you value realism, like in artwork. If someone can paint a landscape, make it look like a landscape, like that's good in your eyes. So yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, Yeah, it's impressive. So historically, like that was the case, right? You have your ultra realists that are trying to paint a scene to make it look exactly like the scene. Then you have the advent of photography, right? So why do you need to paint that anymore if you can take a picture of it? Well, why do you need to travel if you can just look at pictures on Instagram? It's the same thing. It's like the skill of it, the art of it, right? Yeah. And so 
that became the question for a lot of people is like, why do I need to paint realism if I can take a photo? So now how do I make this painting feel like the experience, not look like the experience, but feel like the experience. So hence the impressionist movement. And then beyond the impressionist movement, you have like the, the Dadaists, right? The Dada art movement where it's, Oh, questioning what art is. Um, So that's something totally random. Like I remember in Detroit once I went to this place called the Heidelberg project. You ever hear of that? Yeah. And it's, uh, for those that haven't been, it's, it's kind of an outdoor exhibit throughout a neighborhood Mm -hmm. and each yard has different pieces in it, but it's very low budget. Like for example, one of the exhibits I remember was a big pile of shoes that was probably waist high with a lawnmower parked on Mm -hmm. top. And this woman was up there trying to explain what it meant. And I just could not, as a 25-year-old guy at the time, wrap yeah. my head. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is a pile of shoes right. with a lawnmower on it. Yeah. Don't tell me it's about some struggle of whatever. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. But they did. Yep. Yeah. One of my and favorite, apparently it's a famous piece. One of my favorite videos of all time was uh, um, it's this interview with Will Ferrell. And he goes to the New Museum in New York they're going through this contemporary exhibit and one of the pieces was pillows that were only slept on by acrobats and (laughs) so it's just pillows that are on pedestals in the middle of this gallery and he's just like looking at these things like what like this isn't art but it's art if you say it's art so that's like i have so many complaints about the art world and that's like why i disappeared away from it (laughs) to get famous you basically yeah how does one it's so subjective so is it a whole like a sales process oh yeah it's all money driven and yeah entirely money driven and what people will buy i guess but the people who are buying are probably being convinced of its value rather than 100 like do you think most people who buy it well maybe they are they're just moved by it and they want to look at it every day i no it's (laughs) it's so much of an elitist issue it's like all these rich people that have money and they find a new artist find in quotes and this artist is usually someone that um, a gallerist picks up because they can afford their paintings and then someone rich comes in and is told by the gallerist that oh i found this new upcoming artist they're amazing i'll sell you his piece that i only bought for three hundred dollars I'll sell it to you for 10 grand. And so then these people are like, oh, 10 grand, like that's not a bad deal for a new upcoming artist. And so then more people come in and then the next piece is 20 grand and then 30 grand. And then next thing you know, all of those pieces are at auction because he's this new found discovered artist and all these wealthy people are going to trade in and cash in these pieces of art that they bought early on for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's just a self-serving market, basically. 100%. The markets are created. Yep. yep. Do, do you know what's happening with the Blue Pig? I heard that if the new brewery goes in, in Palisade, I, that they're going to be taken out, or is that not true? I have no idea. There's a lot of fluctuation with that. Um, the partners that were looking at purchasing the building, there's been some strife. And okay. So, but the Blue Pig's cool. Blue Pig's rad. I mean, it's nice that we have a yeah. local art gallery like that. Yep. Um, I had a local artist do the mural on my house. I think yep. Palisade and the Grand Valley are lucky to have the art scene yeah. we do. Yeah. Uh, the, what was the... Um, the gallery we went to where the oh, Omina. Omina. Yep. Yeah, Omina that's pretty contemporary. New, yeah. yeah, so 
It was opened by actually my old high school teacher, Joseph Gonzalez. And so they opened that 2019, the year before COVID. And then COVID shut them down. And so now they're mostly doing pop-up shows, but they're more so trying to focus on contemporary art, not anything else that's in the Grand Valley that's like landscape or antlers or... It's contemporary, like, impressionist? Or they... Um, I mean, there's so many different okay. genres yeah because yeah, we're now technically like in the post postmodern modern stage oh, for art there's the postmodernist now there's the post postmodernists, and it's yeah do you think that well before i ask that question i'll share one story with you because you seem to express a little bit of frustration although it was hilarious what your teacher did to you by the way did you go take the mushrooms and discover yourself did i your, did at the end of grad school did it your was great. paintings become better or i like stopped making paintings you're like yeah, yeah, <laughs> i'm unmotivated now i realize right. that i don't want to paint i realized i found myself and it does not include trying to be part of the perpetuating cycle of the art world <laughs> i uh, i went to grad school for journalism and mm-hmm. that was an experience uh which story for another time but Previous to that, I really, I, in undergrad, I studied engineering, psychology, and business. So I was all over the map, had no idea what I wanted to do. My junior year, I ended up taking a creative writing class. Okay. And I had started to develop my interest in writing and kind of realized that I had it all along. And we wrote poetry and we wrote short stories and things like that. And one of the assignments for the final of class was to write a legit short story. Okay. Which I don't remember how long, but pretty long, like 10, 20 pages, yeah. whatever. And so I come up with this awesome concept to talk about questionings you're trying to answer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? People judge on appearances all the time. Oh, yeah. So, like, you could just – and because I'm not the best-dressed guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean – Saying one to the other. You know, right? Like, I'm pretty, like – I don't know how my hair looks because I just – it is how it is, right? I don't care. Um, so – uh, that's just, and I just thought, okay, yeah, people always judge based on appearance and clothes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I designed this story where this girl meets this guy, shocker, and she likes him and starts dating him. And in the story you're reading and like the parents of the girl don't like him. He kind of expresses that a lot of people don't like him and whatever. And just, you can tell he's under a lot of judgment, but you're not sure why. And as you mm-hmm. go along in the story, he seems like a nice guy. Everything they do, the way he acts is great. And you're like, why don't people like this guy? And on the final scene, you learn that he actually has blue hair and all these piercings in his okay. face. So he's like some punk emo kid. Right. And everybody, the dad, judges him just based yeah. on his appearance. But the girl really likes him because he's a nice guy. And he actually has qualities beyond yeah. just what I he I thought looks it was like. genius. I'm like, yeah. I just wrote the story of the year here. <laughs> I got, I think, a D on it. And the teacher, the criticism she gave me was that She's like, yeah, it just wasn't fair for you to go the whole story without revealing what this guy looked like. Like, I want to know right away, like, who are these characters? What are they doing? And I'm like, ma'am, that was the whole point of the story. So that you wouldn't judge him based on his appearance. You would get to know him as a person. And you're thinking, okay, what's wrong with this person? And then there's your answer. And it's like, okay, he's being judged. And she just couldn't get it. And I'm like, wait, am I... Just am a, I the idiot? Am I above you? Or what's <laughs> yeah. going on here? So yeah, I had to rewrite the whole story and change it just yeah. to get a passing grade for it. And yeah. I was that was the beginning of my just total distrust of creative-based teachers. Right. Yeah. Because it's like, it's creative writing. So you're telling me my creativity is wrong? Right. She was telling me that's wrong. 
I'm like, no, it's not wrong. It's actually way better than what you're suggesting. And yeah, it set me on kind of a struggle Mm -hmm. in grad school. I was the same way. I just really struggled with teachers just trying to tell me how to write. And the whole purpose of grad school journalism is to, which part of it is fair. It's like trying to learn how to write for different magazines and different mm-hmm. styles. And, and there is an appreciation to yeah. that. But my 23-year-old rebellious oh, yeah. self, yeah. I'm like, no, you cannot tell me what's right and what's wrong in terms of writing. It just, yeah. it's, I struggled with that it's a lot. It's funny that you say that because like I had a, almost an opposite experience in grad school. I had a course my first semester, and it was called Writing for Artists. And the professor of the course, like she was incredible. Her name is Rebecca. I come into this class and the whole course is just like weird prompts. So I think week one, it was like, write about a color, like a creative outlet about a color. And I remember doing that piece, like it was my first year up in Oregon and I was moved away from all my friends, from my family. and. The rain had kicked in at that time, and so I have chose, of course, chose the color gray to write about, and, like, it was just this really dark, depressed, like, talking about how sad the color gray is. She pulled me aside after class and was just like, Merle, like, are you, like, are you okay? Like, what you wrote was great, but, like, are you as a human, like, are you doing okay? (laughs) Well, you really moved her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And from that piece and then moving forward throughout the class like the prompts would get a little bit more complex i remember trying to maintain my writing style in that same initial voice that i had provided to her at the beginning of the term where that was rewarded right like oh you wrote in this way so that must be good and so that's what i told myself was like okay now i have that's my writing voice is how to maintain that and so every other prompt like she would look at me and she's like, Merle, like this is terrible. Like, what are you doing? Like, tell me in your words, just talk to me about what you were trying to write about. And I would sit there and talk to her and she would secretly like record me. And I caught on to it after like the second time. Like, three weeks later, she submitted me those recordings. She's like, here's your story. It's like, this is your voice. Like, this is how you talk. Because that's like that's art that's creative writing is expressing your own voice not somebody else's voice not who you think an artist is i love that and yeah i love that there is a danger and that's why i think most creative writing classes should not be graded because fully agree you i did the same thing i would balance my voice Mm -hmm. with how I knew the professor wanted me to write. Right, stylistic expectations. Right. Expectations, man. I need to pass this class. <laughs> I need to get an A. So I, I, I want to write it this way, but when I wrote it last that way the last time, he gave me an A, so maybe I should just follow that track. And that's so awesome. Your teacher did that for you, the recording. Oh, yeah. I used to work at a writing center in Santa Barbara, and kids would come in, and they would be so overwhelmed by the rules yeah. of writing, the teacher expectations. They would be like, we have to write this essay about what we did this weekend. I have no idea what to write about. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what did you do this weekend? And they would rattle off what they did, tell me all about it, all right. this detail. And I'm like, okay, well, just write that. Yeah. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, what you just said, just say it onto the page. Yeah. And it was a disconnect there because like, well, no, I have to write it a certain way and there's rules and all this yeah. stuff. It's yeah, there's rules, but dude, just get it on paper. But that's a big problem in the writing world because people just have that fear of getting it going because they're intimidated. Well, 
it has to be good or it has to follow this this way mm-hmm. yeah it's a and like one thing with rebecca because like end of grad school is coming and i was writing my thesis and i had my first draft of it and i hand it to her and the way that I think and speak often is like in fragments. Like I'm a very fragmented human when I'm explaining things. And so a lot of my writing, I was just like, fuck it. Like, this is how I talk. This is what I'm going to do. Like, this is me. And so a couple of my stories in there were very fragmented two word sentences, just weird run ons, nothing grammatically correct. And like some stylistic changes to, how things were placed on the page and just all over the place. And she uh, read it and I, she called me into her office one day. We set up a meeting and went and met and she just like hands it to me and starts trying to talk to me. And she was like starting to tear up. She was like, this is you. Like, this is perfect. And she's like, don't change anything. What a beautiful moment. Oh, it was perfect. Like I'm like tearing up now. Like it was such a lovely experience with was her. she the best teacher you ever had oh she was incredible like absolutely incredible woman and uh yeah the past couple times i've gone up to oregon i always try to go visit her and check in and that's awesome yeah, just lovely human well there's a difference between a teacher that wants to judge you and then yes. one that wants to encourage you to blossom right so yeah. seems like she was able to walk the line of like okay i'm going to give you some guidance but yep. i'm also going to let you be you and not exactly. tell you right or wrong. It's just, no, yep. here, here, be you. And I was that, very fortunate with my other advisors that I had for my grad committee. Because, like, they all knew that, like, grad school wasn't really my thing. And so, like, what I ended up doing for people, like, one of my advisors, Sylvan, he, uh, he would bring me in to basically make his art for him. <laughs> Which, that's a whole other thing in the art world is artists hiring other people to make their art like a ghostwriter like a ghostwriter in writing okay yeah but like jeff coons like he's famous for it like he's got a factory of people that work for him to make his artwork and uh so on a much smaller scale like i started doing that sort of thing for sylvan and just because i'm the type of person i'll find something figure out how to do it and how to do it well and that's what he was wanting but and, that makes no sense to me. I think yeah. that happens in writing. Too. I think James Patterson does that. Yeah. He has writers write because he's done so many freaking books. So mm-hmm. I think they kind of mimic his style and they right. just do it for him. But how does that, what is he, he's using now going to use something you made in a competition or as an exhibit oh, yeah. and put his yeah. name on it, but yeah. he literally had nothing to do with it? He had the idea. He's the director of the yeah. film. Or yeah, something it's like, it's like an arch- architect compared to the construction workers, I see. right? Okay. So, like, you've got your architect that has the idea of the building, then that has to go to the engineers, and then from the engineer, it has to go to the construction workers that actually build the building, Okay. right? But the architect, he gets all the fame for designing the building. Right, right? okay, that makes sense. But, like, the ground foreman, nobody knows his name, nobody cares, right? because the building's there, and this guy designed it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So did all this kind of hands-on in the art world translate to now what you're doing? Like, yeah. it seems like you were in this kind of artsy community, exploring yourself. Very. You realized it wasn't for you. Yep. And now here you are in Palisade. 
as yeah. a cider maker and now a winemaker. By the way, should yeah. we pour some of that? Just, we probably should. You know, I mean, yeah. it's Friday night. I think we should. Uh, we probably what do you should. usually do on a Friday night? Just try to sleep, get to bed early. <laughs> yeah, you have a very physically demanding job. Um, right now, it's not bad because we're not in harvest season. But come harvest season, like, we're pretty full on. We're working 16-hour days till all the fruit's gone. Yeah, but even just and, brewing cider, making wine, mm -hmm. it's just you're carrying stuff all day. It's physical. You're on your right. feet. You're picking up packs yeah. of sugar and grain and all this yeah. stuff. Do you feel, like, rested? Uh, most days. Okay. Yeah. So you, you chill. Yep. yep. Try to relax. You're not so. going to the livery at 2 a.m. anymore. I hope not. <laughs> but you never know. The livery's there. The yeah. livery is always there. I haven't been to the livery in a while. I was there last Friday. You were? <laughs> <laughs> did you intend intend to go or did you I intended up? to go. It was a friend's twenty first birthday. Twenty first birthday. I know. Wow. Yep. Okay. Every yep. time I end up there it's more of just the night flows there. Yes. Which yeah. is how it's you end up goes. around the Palisade Trifecta. You start at the distillery, then you go to the brewery and then you end at the live. That's I mean it, that's what man. you do. That's it. But I just yeah. I suck at drinking now. Yeah. I mean I, I like this, what we're about to do. Right. We just had a beer, we're gonna have some wine, happy hour, yep. you know. It's only 8 o'clock. Hopefully, I'll be in Perfect. bed by 10 or 11, yeah. you know, whatever, chill. We went to Denver last weekend mm -hmm. and went to uh, – tried to relive our glory days, but Julie and I went to a show <laughs> and uh, on Saturday night, a little DJ show that she likes. Mm -hmm. And so we head out in Denver around 6, 7 o'clock. We have a couple drinks. Took her to the cruise room. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've never this, been to the cruise room. It was – I don't know. It's one of these marketing things, but like the – oldest bar since prohibition to maintain their license oh, okay. or something like that whatever gotcha. but it's a little kind of speakeasy thing yeah. in the oxford hotel and it's an art deco themed uh, room right. so julia moved here from miami uh -huh. so i'm like oh she'll love this it's a martini yep. bar so we had some cocktails we went to a brewery had some food so i was probably four drinks in by 10 o'clock when we got to the show i had one beer at the show a 16 ounce <laughs> My veteran move is that I just take the beer can to the water fountain and uh -huh. I refill it. So I look cool. Right. I'm actually hydrating. Yeah. And then I probably had three 16-ounce waters. <laughs> we get through the show. We're dancing a bit. You know, I hurt my back recently, so I'm yep. taking it semi-easy. We were in bed by 2.30. I was pretty sober when we mm -hmm. went to bed. Slept until 11. Was devastated the next day. <laughs> hungover as hell the next not, day. Well, not like hungover, throwing up and sick, but hungover like, oh man, I'm tired. Yeah. We stayed out late. I drank. Yeah. And I'm like, God, I'm just so soft now. Yeah. Sierra and I, we tried to do that. Um, was that like a month ago? We did a trip up to Breckenridge and like with the alcohol industry, like we've got good partners in Breckenridge. We've got all the boys at Breckenridge Distillery. And then we've got everyone at Breckenridge Brewery and then the Carboy crew at Carboy Breckenridge. And um, so, you know, we get up to Breckenridge at like four o'clock. It's like, oh, let's go stop by the distillery, see what those guys are doing. We have two cocktails there. And then we go check in at Carboy. We were staying in their little apartment, check in there, have a couple glasses of wine at Carboy. And then we're meeting uh, the brewer at Breckenridge at the brewery for dinner and oh my God. we go up there to meet Jimmy and he just starts pouring us beers and the night keeps going. And like, I don't know, we left there at like nine o'clock and then Sierra 
works at Fidel's. And so they're all mezcal there. And we got wind about a mezcal bar in Breckenridge um, called Rita's. So we stop in there. We had a connection with that bartender through Jimmy. And so he's pouring us mezcal. Then we decide to go to this like art basement arcade in Breckenridge. And we have one more beer there. Get home at like one o'clock. Next day, just it was like the three day hangover, <laughs> like just wrecked. And we had to drive back from Breckenridge the next day and it's barely functioning. Feeling. It's terrible. Do you remember when you were 21 and you could drink until four and wake up at six for well, work? Like I my, did it all the time. My guiding days, like that was the hardest part of guiding is like being a river guide. Everyone expects you to be just a full blown party animal because I it's you like, all were. I mean, we mostly are. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, the way that we would run, like, of course, we're not allowed to drink during the day um, because we're on the water, like we're taking care of people. But like, as soon as we get to camp at the end of the day and get camp set up, get dinner cooking, like we all start opening beers and all the guests at that point on the trip are pretty well wasted into the day. So they want us to catch up to them. We would go through like bottles of whiskey between the guides every night and be up till bottles of whiskey oh yeah like it was not uncommon for like me and another guide to to split a bottle of bullet and like that's what we would do and we'd be up till two in the morning and then we'd wake up at five five thirty and do it all over again for five six days in a row but at that age you know you wake up at five and you're hung over for an hour and have some food and you're good to go oh yeah you know you just shake it off it's just easy now, yeah. Last, now I would be fatigue last two in the days, hospital three for days. three days, and it really only recently started to be like this for me. I felt like I could still yeah. drink in my early thirties. Traveling, obviously, I I did a lot of nightlife, but now in the past two three years, I'm mm-hmm. really starting to see the change. I don't know what to do about it. We'll see. Maybe you need more practice. Who knows? It's kind of self serving because then you is. stop drinking, mm-hmm. and then your tolerance gets less and less. And then when yep. you have the big nights, it's just, you're not prepared for it. Yeah. But you being in the booze business, it's, like that story you just told me, gave me a little anxiety. You went from right. distillery to wine, to beer, back to mezcal, yada, yada. Oh yeah. But you're making cider every day. Yep. You're making wine every day now. So we drink every day. That's what I mean. You're yeah. drinking all the time. Yeah. How does, does that phase you? I mean, it, because like building an alcohol tolerance, like you just have to have a small intake every day. Okay. to maintain a tolerance you don't have to have a five volume you just need to have it present in your body every day so should i have one beer a day with that be your, your advice? tolerance would go way up it would yeah just on one because your body's learning to lager or oh, something yeah. your body's learning to metabolize it every day whereas like if you just hit it with a big like one two punch every once in a while like it doesn't know what to do <laughs> yeah that's fair enough so I yeah. feel like craft beer is part of the problem, too. I love... <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Just hear me out here. I, mean, I love craft beer. I used to write about it a ton, mm-hmm. covered it, was all about it. I love the taste. But my buddy pointed out to me the other day, I was telling him this Denver story. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of went into another story where I was at the brewery a couple weeks ago with a buddy. Hadn't seen him in a while. We were there maybe two and a half, three hours. Mm-hmm. I had four IPAs. That'll and do it. Felt pretty good. Nothing mm-hmm. crazy. You know, it was a reasonable amount of time. Went home, went to bed, woke up at two in the morning, like drenched in sweat, <laughs> hot, like 
dry mouth, just feeling horrible, headache, was up for an hour, couldn't get back to sleep, felt miserable the next day. And I'm like, I only had four beers. And then my buddy, we were in his garage the other day having a Coors Light, and he just holds up the can. He's like, dude, you basically had eight Coors Lights having four craft beers. Oh, yeah. And I never really thought about it that way because this mountain time is what, 4.4. So that's light. But I think just... It's a different than a Coors Light because it seems heavier. The ingredients are heavier. Yep. There's just more substance to it. So I feel it hits me harder. Oh, than, yeah. So I might just go back to the Coors Light train or the yeah. Montucky train. or Seeing, yeah, like the light beer and then also like wine. Like I've been drinking a lot more wine lately and a lot more wine, a lot more cider. Like it just doesn't fill you up. That's as cool. much. But, you know, I, when I lived um, in Denver a couple of years, uh, 2012 to 20. 16 ish it was if you ordered a Coors Light you were a loser like that was the boom for Denver beer well a little before that but you couldn't walk into a bar and seriously order a Coors Light people would look at you and judge you big time oh yeah so I just but I guess I could handle it back then yeah (laughs) so take me through a day for you now so so yeah you're making cider how did wait first off how did you even so that from (laughs) our I've bounced around a lot doing things. So I got done with grad school in 2015, 2016, something like that, and was living up in Eugene, Oregon. So as soon as I was done with grad school, like I was just bartending and trying to figure out what my next move was. I knew I didn't want to do really anything in the art world, was trying to get into more environmental work just with my research in school and like the connection to nature and love being outside rafting my guiding history got the opportunity to go on a grand canyon trip in 2018 2018 or 2019 one of those went down the grand amazing um, i yeah. hear it's an incredible trip oh it's great um, i want to do it private trip 21 days 16 people beautiful time Ended up swinging back through Grand Junction on my way back home to Oregon, which was a little out of the way, but um, not too much. You know, it was a nice little surprise for the parents and whatnot. And ran into an old friend. She was working for Colorado Canyons Association here in Grand Junction. They're a nonprofit that is mostly focused around getting students outside and excited about nature, which was like everything I was wanting to do. So I applied for this job. Ended up getting the job, ended up moving out here in 2019 to help manage this river program. So was back on the river, taking students downstream, getting them excited about being outside with guiding being seasonal, only summertime work. I was out of work come mid-October and October, and my good friend Charles Talbot offered me a position, just they couldn't really pay me well small business, but I was willing to take anything at the time. And so went up to start working at um, Talbot Cider Company. And my first year was mostly remodeling their tap room. You were there a year before you started making cider. I was there for two years. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yep. Remodeled tap room ever so often would go and clean tanks in the cellar, kind of help with canning days and kind of dipped the toes into what production was like and then got back on the river next summer and then back up at Talbot's the following winter was leaning more into cellar work. So most of my time was in the cellar, not 
doing remodel work at that point. And by the seller, you mean the cider seller? Yes. Okay. Yep. Cider seller. Started getting into helping with ferments, trying to learn the process, learning how to make cider, learning more so about canning and packaging and started heading our packaging at that point and then was offered a position to go work up in Alaska in 2021 for the summer. So went and worked in Alaska doing- What did you do up there? I was doing environmental remediation work. A good friend of mine, he had been working up there for as long as I can remember and he needed a good hand, a good labor hand up there. So Where in Alaska? Um, I was all over the place up there. Alaska is freaking amazing. It's incredible. And amazing with this job, like I got to see such incredible places. Like I started off in the Southeast down outside of Petersburg, Alaska. We were on a little Island called level Island. Most of our jobs up there were all funded by the FAA. So doing old contaminant removal from like old VOR radio tower sites, and like big landfill cleanups and petroleum soaked soils, tank farm spills, digging dirty dirt was basically the job. So we would dig dirt, we would put it into one cubic yard bags. They were called super sacks. Super sacks. Super sacks. <laughs> put all the dirt in those bags and then we would ship the dirt off to Oregon of all places from Alaska so the dirt could get treated. Government works a little weird. Really? <laughs> yep. So they would treat it and then send the dirt back? No, we would joke that we were just removing Alaska one yard at a time. Totally. You yep. were. I mean, and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, started off in Petersburg, then spent some time up in Farewell. It's about 50 miles north of the Alaska Range, straight north of Anchorage. A little short job up there, then down to Juneau on a small island job outside of there. Made it up to Nome. For a little bit, cool. Nome's a weird place. I bet. Yep. What do you, What were your What was your take on it? Oh man, it's. I feel like Alaska yeah. in general is just a weird place because not that many people live up there, and the people that do are just a special breed to to a very special breed to deal with the conditions. I thought I knew wilderness, having been around Colorado, oh, yeah. the West. You get up there, it's it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, everyone's hyper independent. Pretty much everyone knows how to do just about anything because, I mean, that's the mentality you have to have. Like, you can't just go down to the grocery store when you're living out in the bush. You've got to order in planes. You either need to know how to fly a plane or know who to get stuff in on. And so you're waiting. You're waiting for parts until you can get stuff going. So you might as well figure out how to do it yourself. Yeah. Great experience up there, but while I was up there, I got a phone call from Charles when I was back in cell service, and he told me, like, hey, if you want the seller when you get back from Alaska, the seller's yours. And so could not pass up on that opportunity. So when I got back um, from working up there, jumped right into making my first ciders and taking everything over. And that was fall of 21. Fall of 21. Yep. So you've been there about, I don't know what year it is, a year it's and a half? 23. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Making everything from that point. Cool. And you took over their main recipes or you've been um, Took over their stuff? their mains, been doing a lot of, a lot of adjustments on things. Um, just 
they, the Talbot family, they're also very generous in putting me through the um, Davis winemaking program at the moment. So I'm doing online school at this time, just going through anything that we could be doing better and trying to improve upon our current processes. And Yeah, so I don't think uh, a lot of people realize that Talbot's is making wine now. So yeah. tell us a little bit about and that. And Talbot's... The family, they have been farming the region since 1907. Yeah. So old family in the valley. We actually supply about a third of the wine grapes for the entire Colorado wine industry. Really? Uh, yep. A third? A third. And so compared wow. to like California, Oregon, like we are small potatoes. We've only got 180 acres of wine grapes compared to like you go over to Cali or Oregon, Washington, like some of these single vineyard blocks are 180 acres of just one variety. We grow about 43 varieties of wine grapes. We um, pick, process, um, ship out to different winemakers throughout Colorado. Most of it stays in the valley. We have been doing wine for a while now. It's under Centennial Cellars is the label. We're working on trying to revitalize that program. And so I've been working with Charles and Bruce and Joe to figure out what we want that program to look like. But was Centennial and, always a part of Talbot's or did they purchase that at some point? Um, Centennial's the Talbot's brand. So um, they, they created yep, that brand. They created okay. Centennial. I think they started that in 20, like 2016. Oh, so they've had like it for that. quite a while. Yeah. All right. Um, but just not really familiar that's not what they've been pushing not the with focus the, yeah but now with us stepping into this kind of new era of winemaking and trying to figure out like what direction we're trying to take it we're looking at mostly wanting to do kind of an educational focus on wine because a lot of the varieties that we grow like we grow 43 varieties of grapes and throughout the world there's about 5,000 grape varieties that are used to make wine but 98% of wine that's made is made from seven varietals of grapes. So there's a lot of varieties out there that people just don't know of. What I would like to do is just start making smaller batches of wine, having them be taproom exclusive wines where people can come up and try like a true Traminer. Um, Never heard of it. Yep. <laughs> and so Traminer, like it's a very special grape. It's uh old old world austrian wine grape and it's the parent to both traminet and gewürztraminer so like gewürztraminer gewürzt in german means spicy mm. and so gewürztraminer is a spicy traminer traminer it's the parent to both of those they it's the end of the um kind of ge genealogical history of those grape varietals. So it's the parent of all those things. And it's as far back as they can track that grape. We were lucky that Charles Talbot, he grew 10 vines on his property. And so I took those grapes and made 10 gallons of Traminer. And like, it's a very special wine. So that's cool. I was talking to Joe Flynn on a previous yeah. episode and we were kind of talking about this with the cold hardies mm -hmm. and, and how Palisade has this opportunity to differentiate itself. However, you mentioned 98% you know, comes from seven or eight varietals. It right. just it doesn't have the marketability yet. Right. So how do you 
kind of expand while still pulling someone exactly. in. Exactly. Right? And so that's why like we're wanting to lean into more of this kind of educational focus of just be like, hey, we're going to make a bunch of single varietal wines that highlight what you can possibly do with these grapes you've never heard of. Yeah, what's this we're drinking? We're currently drinking. It's called Gruner Veltlinger. It's Does also everyone have to be hard to pronounce, or are there any? Easy oh, they're all <laughs> all difficult. That's a German and grape, I'm guessing. It's a old world Austrian, um, but also just it grows well in the valley. It's really nice. And yeah, thank nice you. Nice acidity, yeah. smooth. You made yeah, this. I did. Everyone I've talked to is an old school winemaker, been doing right. it forever. You're brand new. What do you think? Yeah, this, you... So this Gruner that you're drinking, this is the first wine that I ever made. Ever? Ever. Oh, um, buddy. Cheers. And this is great. I do have to shout out Joe Flynn. He has been doing his alternating proprietorship, developing his label periphery yeah. up at Talbot's. And so I was fortunate enough to have him take me through my first crush season and how to manage these small batch wines and... A lot of props to him for taking me through that whole process. What and do you think of winemaking compared to cider making? And- oh, I love it. Yeah. And especially coming from that art background, that history of mathematics background in undergrad, like it's the perfect blend for me of creativity as well as that kind of scientific side that we were talking about that art is lacking where it's subjective i mean there is a lot of subjectivity in wine and winemaking because everyone has taste and everyone's taste is different but there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong like you can make a bad wine right and you can also make a good wine yeah so there's some kind of metric to try to reach for and there's stylistic guides exactly how a grape a range within a grape that can be expressed right right yeah. yeah, but there's that's perfect. Also, those like stylistic things, like a bunch of those are changing specifically in the U.S. because like we don't have that history of old world winemaking. Everything here is like we're figuring it out. We've got these grapes that nobody knows about, no one can pronounce, and we're trying to f- figure out how to make good wine and sell this to people that don't know what it is. Those stylistic things, like you've got to figure out how to make this grape good without any historic background of what makes it good right marketing man marketing you know yeah just tell people about it and right. create the story behind it exactly that's what's gonna capture them or is this on tap now at the tap room yes or available? yep yep so okay. we've got all of our wines from 2022 are now on tap outside of cab franc which i've got that in tank right now it'll be coming out later this fall but yeah it's just the balance between the art the science the yes is the nose like wine just makes sense to me and it also has this really heavy labor involvement that i love are you um, bored with cider now no yeah because i, don't I would think, imagine like, once you start making wine which is harvesting dealing with the fruits mm-hmm. all this creativity you're talking about cider you're more of ordering ingredients following a recipe there's there's some component you. to that but it's also like it's the same process of making cider as it is to make wine. It's you're taking a juice, you're fermenting the juice and you're putting it in a package. Well, I guess you guys are crushing the apple. So maybe I'm yep. completely wrong in what I just said. Maybe that's more beer where you're ordering the right. ingredients. You yeah. guys are actually using apples. Yes. Yeah, so we, and stuff for the cider. we do all whole fruit. It's all crushed on site. I stand um, corrected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess I didn't even really think of that. When you think of cider, you just, what do people think of cider? It's kind of the third wheel in a way to beer. It totally wine. is. Yeah. It definitely has much more of a foothold like over in 
Europe, just it's got that history. Um, the dry English ciders. Exactly. As far as it like becoming more mainlined in the U.S., like everyone's familiar with Angry Orchard. Yeah. And that's exactly what we don't want to be because Angry Orchard's a lot of concentrates. It's a lot of sugar. It's very, very sweet. Everything that we're trying to make up there is trying to highlight the fruit, trying to highlight the farm, make a beverage that's approachable to people and not standoffish. Do you have a favorite? Um, I do have one that's coming out very soon. Okay, um, a new release? It's a new release. So we do a lot of partnerships with different distilleries around Colorado, and one of them being Peachtree Distillery here in Palisade. We purchase their spent liquor barrels, and we'll age ciders in those liquor barrels for anywhere from six months to a year and a half. And I have our Grow a Pear Cider, which is 100% pear, back sweetened with Gewürztraminer juice. You put wine in there? Uh, not wine, just the juice. The grape yep, juice. The I grape see. juice. Okay, cool. So the juice of Gewürztraminer. Got it. That's been sitting in a barrel for about a year in one of Pete Street's uh, pear gin barrels. We just tasted it the other day, and it's going to be phenomenal. And Is it just one barrel? How many do you have? Two barrels, so 100 gallons. 100 gallons. Yep. And that'll make how many bottles? Like, so we should uh, put a run on this thing when it comes out. Right, yeah. All right. And it'll be only at the tap room, cool. um, so you got to come up and get it. And so we're trying to find that balance of what do we make as an exclusive that people have to seek out, like with our seasonal products, how much do we make so that it actually runs out and people want more of it when it's gone. Yeah. So, well, it's a balance because the seasonal staples are great because it's an everyday thing to have in your fridge, but you don't really take a lot of risks in that. It's nice to do a hundred gallons of something because if it turns out to be shit, then who cares? Exactly. But it's not something really special that you're really wanting to sell or hold on to and and make a special occasion out of. Yeah. We, also got the chance to experiment with lesser-known grape. This is called Baco Noir. Baco Noir. Um, so Baco Noir is a cold-hardy variety. It was initially developed over in France in 1902 and brought to the U.S. Uh, 1950s, early 1950s, up in upstate New York, and slowly has migrated over to um, Colorado. We grow small amounts of Baco Noir just to experiment with, figure out what to do with this grape. Grows phenomenally here. And it's mostly used as like a red wine blender, but we decided to make a wine that is 100% Baco Noir and we did it in a rosé style. So no skin contact, just pressed right off the skins, fermented juice, very, very fruity, very fun, and a very unique wine. Wow, that's really flavorful. And 100% dry. Everything that we're doing is all dry. There's no sugar in this? No sugar. What? It's all fruit. Stevia? (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. Yeah. When you say it's 100% dry, it's all fruit, do you mean there's no added sugar or there's no sugar from the fruit left? It's completely gone. There's no sugar in it at all. So this is... Completely sugar-free. Completely sugar-free. So someone who was diabetic could drink this. Yes. But it tastes sweet. Yep. So that's a common misconception like in the wine world where people will taste something and say like, oh, this tastes sweet, even though it is a dry wine. 
there is the perception of sweetness, which is the combination of alcohol with like your residual fruit aromas, that fruit characteristic that comes from the wine. So like this has cherry, black cherry, pie cherry sort of aromas and flavors coming out of it, but that's no sugar. I get a lot of black cherry. Mm-hmm. I hate saying these things because then right. people are like, no, that's wrong. No, you're wrong. It's actually dirty grass you're smelling. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, it's cat whatever. piss. Yeah. <laughs> the taste. So have you gotten into wine culture and all this notes and how I've, are you fitting in amongst your classmates? Let's say? <laughs> it's a necessary component. Um, especially like with understanding flaws within a wine, like you need to know when something's going bad, like in your fermentation or like if there's a specific bacteria that your wine picked up that you need to figure out how to get rid of. So as far as developing a palate and developing a nose for wine, like it is important in the processing, but with that, the whole like elitism surrounding the flavors and aromas that some people pick up it's like i i don't know it's a lot <laughs> like i'm really not getting that morning dew <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah like it becomes a little much sometimes it does it, i appreciate it because it's again a connection yeah i think that anything that helps you make a connection to what you're experiencing is a good thing but of course, it's the old adage: a few ruin it for everyone when they have to take it to that level. Of right? course. Yeah. But the great thing about Palisade is that it's not stuffy. Right. I've never been to a tasting room where someone gets overly, whatever. Pretentious. Yeah, it's it's not that. In fact, it's it's usually the opposite. I'm always usually wanting more right. from most tasting rooms. Yeah. But it's a good thing in a bad. Yeah, it's a good it's a good thing as far right. as I'm concerned because yeah. I used to live in California and some of the wine regions you go there talk about judgment i would walk oh, 100%. in in a t-shirt and you're already behind the eight ball they're like this person doesn't know why oh yeah whatever and they like splash some wine in your glass without even making eye contact and then quickly turn away and you yeah. never see them again yeah service makes a difference in it the does. experience yep. i'm sure you guys work you know that at talbots yeah it's like that's half the connection in the experience is that person behind the bar it doesn't really matter what you're serving it's how it's served, it's how you how serve it's it. presented and yep I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And which that's like leading back to the whole education concept of like what we're trying to do as well as anyone that owns a tasting room. Like you have to educate your consumer and especially with something like cider and with wine varietals that no one's heard of. Like you can't get someone to buy it if they don't know what it is. We're trying to have a big focus push on our tasting room staff to really know what they're talking about when they're talking to a consumer. So like we sit down and we have tastings of our new wines that are coming out. Like here's the history of this grape, know the history. People want to know where stuff comes from. People want to know what vineyard it's picked from. People want to know how this was processed. And so there does have to be some general knowledge for whoever's selling it in order for the consumer to get that buy-in. Yeah. Are you guys getting a Talbot's, true wine tasters because you guys are farming background people know you for the right. cider so is it is pe- are people discovering the wine once they're in there or are you starting to have people coming specifically for wine now we've now started having some people start coming in for wine That's which awesome. is incredible That's and amazing. yeah it makes my little 
stomach butterflies twitter and yeah yeah are you gonna do some tastings for the public and um, get behind the bar or do a special event where you're gonna do a release party or something we haven't really discussed those things yet well We're, i am we need my, to <laughs> i am saying you should <laughs> yeah well we'll be yeah be working with Charles and I mean you were you've been a guide crew. in multiple occasions. We haven't even talked oh, yeah. about your other about life travel that you lived. And exactly. None of those. So I, I I I think I got my timeline wrong. I thought it was going to come up naturally because of the story, but I guess you're guiding your, your Which tours I, that you were doing were yeah. before, right? Well, no, I totally missed that in my own timeline. <laughs> you don't even remember what you've done. <laughs> yeah. So I because you you guided ninety day tours. Yes. Okay, yep. 90 days, three months. 90 you, days. You were guiding a group in yep. Southeast Asia, right? In Southeast Asia. Right, you got to tell us about this part of your life because to me it's fascinating. Yep. And so with that, how it fits in the timeline, I totally <laughs> forgot about this. I mostly wiped it from my memory. Okay, After, so it was that bad, huh? There were components that were really rough. Once I got off my Grand Canyon trip, that's when I was offered this position to be an international student travel guide. So I missed this whole like eight-month period. <laughs> the summer following my Grand Canyon trip, I was working for a company based out of Bend, Oregon called ARC Programs. They are student-focused, mostly looking at getting students from around the U.S. to go on summer trips, which these summer trips are shorter duration, like two weeks, usually younger students, like late middle school, early high school, and so like 12 to 15. 12 to 15 range. Yep. I was fortunate enough to work two, uh, what do we call them? The California road trip trips for ARC. And so we had 14 students, 12 to 15 years old, loaded up in a 15-passenger van with a U-Haul trailer. And we would drive around to different locations around California. Couldn't get um, a nicer bus than a 15-passenger van? Man, we're working on a budget. Come on, man. Towing a U-Haul? What a janky setup that is. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Especially You're basically a river in, guide. Especially in San Francisco with a 15-passenger and a U-Haul trying wow. to park that thing. Love yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And that was just, you would take them from route one basically the coastal drive um a lot of it was inland so it was based around san francisco big components of these were also like service activities getting students interested in like things that they would never see one of my favorite parts from these california trips was taking my groups of students to the tenderloin district in san francisco where we would work a breakfast shift for one of the food kitchens oh that's cool and an because experience. An sure. experience. Most of these students, they were coming from very like well-to-do families, very wealthy. And so being exposed to communities of people that weren't as privileged as they were was hugely important for them. I would imagine. And I remember this one morning, we were pulling up to the Tenderloin District. It's like six in the morning. And we had our little kind of pre-talk before getting out of the van, like... I remember turning around in the van, telling everyone, like, hey, you're about to experience some things that you have never seen in your life and you may never see again. A lot of these people, they are living very impoverished lives. They're living in very tight quarter housing, a lot of drug use, uh, a lot of abuse, a lot of alcoholism. Like, just, we're going to walk as a group, stay together, and as soon as we turn this corner, 
just be ready for anything. Wow. And I swear to God. Are they knees shaking or what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and as soon as we turned the corner to go down to this food kitchen, it was like from a fucking movie scene. First thing I see about 15 feet away is a gentleman just like you know, taking a shit in the alley. Oh, God. And then next, like, 10 yards down from him, there's two guys just fighting it out in the middle of the street with two by fours. Um, two by fours. Oh, yeah. Um, like, there's blood on the ground. There's people screaming at each other. And we're just all in our little travel group uniforms, <laughs> all clean and pristine, walking down this little alleyway. Went, did our food kitchen service. And then we would always do a debrief after any kind of activity. So we went to one of the parks. Um, in San Francisco, we all sat down and I would always like to open the conversation just like, Hey, we're going to go around anything that you guys are feeling and that you want to talk about. Let's just talk about this. Um, cause I'm sure you guys are feeling some things and you need to talk these things through. And with doing that, it led to these like really powerful conversations for these young students where they're seeing things that they never knew existed. Like they thought it was just in the movies and they get to live it firsthand for a very brief period of time. One of my, one of the best people in the world that I ever dealt had like the pleasure of meeting was this gal from one of these trips, just so smart for her age. So worldly, like she's going to be one of our world leaders eventually, but just so knowledgeable about about everything and taking the time to look at like where these people are coming from, not judging them, not taking it from a point of judgment and like, Oh, well they should do this. They should do this. It's like, no, like they can't do these things. Like they don't have the money to move out of this place. Like they're living in a food desert. They have X, Y, Z that are impacting them and just being a leader for like her other same age students and all of them being like, Oh, like she gets it. She's saying it. That means like, I can listen to it. It's not our old man leader telling us these things that we should listen to. <laughs> it um, really helps to have an advocate as a oh, guide, right? Fully. <laughs> that shows them you're not full of shit. And oh yeah. Just trying to do whatever. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's going to show you don't need to travel far to have a real travel experience. Oh, not at all. Yeah. You just need to be willing to take the time to go down the streets. You might not otherwise go down following those two, two week long trips. I was asked to be a leader on a 90 day long gap semester in Southeast Asia with a group of students anywhere from 18 to 20 years old. The gap semester, it's mostly designed for students out of high school that are thinking about going to college, don't really know what direction they want to go, what they want to study. Um, they don't want to just like go waste their money for no reason if college isn't what they're wanting to do. Like I'm a big advocate of a gap semester if people have the, like the finances or have the ability to do so. Just, I wish I would have taken the time instead of going straight from high school into college, straight from college into grad school, like taking time in between steps. Coming into this, I was very excited to get this group of students out and be like, no, like don't go straight to school. Right. <laughs> you wanted to like show them what they were, you, you were kind of living vicariously through them. Oh, hundred percent. We go to do this trip. We again meet in San Francisco, meeting our students for the first time. 
up uh, north of San Francisco. We were doing like this camp out for the first day just to get to know all of our students before we all jump on a train, jump on a plane to Vietnam. Great group. Everyone's kind of vibing well with each other. And next day we go to the airport, try to leave. And one of my students visa for entry into Vietnam, his name is spelt wrong compared to his passport. Oh God. So he's not allowed to get on the plane. And then another student, she like got the wrong visa. So we had to stay behind. My co-leader had to take the other 10 students to to Vietnam on her own. And I was like, yeah, I've got to stay behind. We're going to go to the consulate tomorrow, which luckily there's a Vietnamese consulate in San Francisco. So we went to the consulate office, got their stuff expedited that day, jumped on the plane next day, go and meet them in Hanoi. And the trip is already just like a junk show. I was going to say, that is a horrible <laughs> way to start the trip. Mate. Horrible way. Yeah. So what was it like? How many how many students were there? Um, we had 12 total. 12. Okay. Um, so it was you and one other guide. Me and one other guide. people. Yep. Right. And 90 days. 90 days. So did you kind of grasp how long that is before you started? I mean, I was just, I was down to do it. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I can do this. Yeah. Yep, one day at a time. One day at a time. River but, guide stuff. Uh, true. <laughs> but you know there's going to be ups and downs. Of course. And so what was, when you guys landed in Hanoi to meet the group, what was already going? Um, so one of the struggles, my co-leader, like fantastic individual. She works very, very well with younger age students. Early middle school, early high school. Fantastic. Super high energy. You know, very good at leading the group, playing Mama Duck. All right, guys, here we go. Ready? Exactly. Guide talk. And that is the last thing in the world that 18-year-olds want to hear. Totally. I was fortunate enough with, like, my grad experience and, like, I taught, had a fair amount of college teaching experience. So teaching students this age, just understanding how to interact with people of that age group. So I feel like just missing that first day with the students over in Vietnam was just, it sent us on a downward downward spiral. But what was their, what was the kids' intention? Because were they looking at this as, this is what an opportunity, it's going to change my life and perspective, or were they like, I'm 18, I can drink in Southeast Asia, so I want to So this was also a non-drinking trip. Right, but they're going to do it. If they did it, they had to get kicked off from the trip if we found out. Even if they were legally allowed to drink? Oh, yep. wow. So a completely dry trip. What was, um, that was just the trip rule, no yep. drinking. Trip rule, company rule. We They found that it's been better for like those groups because the oh, moment you, you start of introducing course. drinking. It's a nightmare, yeah. And number one, you're teaching young kids like their first international travel experience for a lot of them. And then number two, a lot of them haven't had bar experience. So now you're throwing like... Hanoi late night drinking experience at them like they're not going to know what to do 
Oh, it would be a nightmare. I'll, I'll, let me mix in some of my experience here, too. This way we can really get to the details oh, yeah. of it because I, too, have led a long trip. Yep. Last summer, I led a 60-day tour, 57 mm-hmm. days. We went to 12 countries. It was a round-the-world tour. Yep. And like you, when I was first presented with the idea, I was like, hell yes. Oh, yeah. I am going to do this. This is the Iron Man of guiding. I had background with this company. I would guided for them in Hawaii done one trip for them in Europe and they came mm-hmm. to me and they're like, well, we have this tour. We think you'd be perfect we're for EF, EF okay. education yep. first. And I'm just thinking when they came to me, I'm like, wow, look at yeah. me. I'm just the best guide, I guess, because yeah. here I am just guiding in my little Island of Hawaii. And now they want me to go around the world. I must be pretty <laughs> great. Little did I know that no one else wanted to do this tour, Yeah, which is why. And there's reasons. Oh, big time. There's reasons. Well, there's financial reasons because as a full-time guide, you can make more money doing week-long trips. Of course. Because you get tipped out at the end yep. of every week as opposed to a longer trip. You got trip. tips. I did, but not not what you'd expect because at the end of two months, I didn't everybody get tips. spent. Well, you're dealing with 18-year-olds. I'm dealing with their parents. And nobody tipped you? No. Really? That's hard. You didn't get one dollar of tip after no, ninety no, days. No, no, no. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you go above and beyond the job? Did you think? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. See, that's for me. Yeah. It's I'm not like tipping culture for me now is yeah. kind of overblown. You order a black coffee and someone turns around and they expect you yeah. to tip. It's like, well, at a counter service restaurant. Exactly. Like, I'm like, yeah. well, the, the does the coffee ordering the coffee include pouring it or is that extra? You know. Anyway, right. so that's a whole different side rant that I don't have the energy for right now. But, <laughs> you know, I went above and beyond a lot of these people. And, the mo- of course, it's always the most difficult people that I had two pe- I had one guy who, uh, when we were leaving Kenya, going to Thailand, mm-hmm. he didn't get his yellow fever shot. So oh. he had to – no, excuse let me – I think – no, we were in – Oh, God, travel brain. We were in uh-huh. Dubai going yep. to Kenya yep. or Kenya going to Thailand. I can't remember which one, but he yep. had to get left behind Okay, because he didn't have his uh, certificate that he needed. I had one person who had visa issues in another place. Mm-hmm. And these are the people you spend the most time with. You help them and yep. you figure, okay, like they're going to take care of me in the end because I just spent eight hours of my time yeah. with this person, bailing no, them out no, of the situation. No, they're the last ones because it's your fault. They're the ones that don't tip you. Yeah, because yeah. it was your fault. And the people that you had no problem with and basically <laughs> were self-sufficient are the yeah. ones that tip you. It's so funny that way. Oh, yeah. But So, yeah, I get hired for this 57-day tour. I think I'm a hot shot. Unbeknownst, I'm just a sucker. My group was 18 to 30-year-olds. That's a big gap. It's a big gap, but the trip was $16,000. Yeah. So I'm thinking in my head, okay – most people could be some younger people, but most mm-hmm. people are probably going to be self-sufficient. Maybe they're having a quarter-life crisis. Maybe they're right. in between jobs and they want to explore the world and have a great experience and find themselves. And I'm all about that. And I'm a perfect shaman for these people. And we're going to really connect. We're going to have a lot of late nights talking and discussing things. <laughs> no, you're not. And we're going to stand <laughs> at these beautiful places and we're going to ask questions about them. And we're yep. going to read books on our way to the next country. And we're going to be total awesome travelers. And what I got was a bunch of college kids yep. who should have just been on a European backpacking trip, mm-hmm. but just wanted to party and drink. But they need you as Above a safety net. all else. But they didn't want to plan the trip for themselves. Yep. Or do, or it's just, well, my parents are paying, so whatever. But yeah, yeah, that was the idea. Like, well, I asked some of them straight up. I'm like, why didn't you just come to Europe and 
drink your way through it backpacking. Right. Oh, well, it's nice to go with a group because then you have friends and you don't have to schedule everything, which I guess is true. But yeah. the first week was great. We went to, we yeah. started in Peru. Okay. We went to Machu Picchu, flew into Lima. It was got little bad logistics. Flew into Lima overnight, flew into Cusco, mm-hmm. headed to, to Machu Picchu. I had a local guide with me there. Were you guys hiking Machu Picchu? We did. Well, we. Because that's rough after two days of jet lag, too. We didn't do the Salkantai or yeah. the Inca Trail or yeah. anything like that. We um, took the train to Aguas Calientes. Then you take. Have you been? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, you go to Aguas Calientes, which is kind of the base town. Then it's. A little bit of that annoying travel circuit, but you are loaded onto these buses, then you're taken up, and then you're exploring Machu Picchu, which is absolutely freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. Just the perspective up there, the fact that people built this, the mountains that are just towering above you up there. And it's kind of a hike to walk through the complex, but Mm -hmm. then we gave everyone the option to walk down. Yeah. But we didn't really hike that much. But my, my, my local guide there, Sally, was amazing. She okay. handled basically everything. Yeah. So I just was joyriding. Yeah. I was getting to know the guests. And the first week was great because you still have this hope that everyone in the group is cool. You're getting to know each other. You don't... You're on this trip. You have to be cool. Oh, well, you're just small yeah. talk, right? Yeah. It's the first week. You're making your rounds. I had 26 guests. Wow. So 21 girls, five guys. You know, small talk throughout the first week. I'm like, wow, everyone's so nice, mm-hmm. and that's how I'm used to. I'm used to leading week long tours where, most of the time, if you discover that you're not quite compatible with someone, it's a week, so right. you just get through it. You got a couple more days with them. You figure out cut. what they need to be happy, and you make yeah. them happy, and that's it. But this trip was eight weeks, so after yeah. the first couple weeks, once we got to Europe, it really went downhill because the priorities changed. <laughs> Peru, we were so busy hiking and people would go for happy hour, but there wasn't kind of the nightlife aspect. Yeah. And even when we were in Lima or Cusco, we, we went out, but it was early in the trip. Everyone was energetic. Yeah. More importantly, I was energetic. Yeah. So I go out with them to the bar, hang out. Yeah. I could be fun and be myself, yeah. but you just can't sustain it. I'm just telling you right now, I can't oh, yeah. drink anymore. So <laughs> I can't, we come on week two, week three, like guys, I can't go out with you every night. So mm-hmm. I had to kind of put up a stiff arm yeah. and that changed the dynamics because in Europe, we, we had six countries in Europe. All they wanted to do was drink. Yeah. Literally, like, let's take a tiny, tiny splash for our <laughs> nightcap. Uh, <laughs> all they wanted to do was drink. I'd be like, guys, we're going to the Coliseum tomorrow. It's one of the most Pinnacles of history. sites like, in the world. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, well, how long is the tour going to be? Do we have to stay the whole and time? Like, what does it matter how long? Hopefully, it's going to be 12 hours. Yeah. Shut up, you know? <laughs> So just we, we I just found myself a little incompatible because they wanted to see the world through nightlife, drinking, and Tinder. Right. And then, of course, there were only five guys, luckily, so it wasn't that bad. But a couple of them were single guys, started uh-huh. hooking up with the people in the group. Yep. This was still when countries had COVID restrictions and uh-huh. things like that. So it became just very difficult. And as you know as a guide, and maybe you can chime in with some yeah. stories here, but... Because as the guide, it's not about you, but it is. You do want to feel like but your you're ego an wants it to be about you. Well, yeah, yes, to okay, some degree. But it's also not yeah. like I'm hired for a reason, right? I want to add value to you. Yes, I am an experienced traveler. Yeah. I can help you, and it's not like I have all the answers, but I can kind of help you navigate and make yeah. good decisions. You want people to come to you with questions, like, "Hey, like, how do I deal with?" 
this situation like yeah or just um, should i eat at this random street food place in the middle of nowhere there are things like that but also (laughs) just i i mean i got kind of i was trying to teach them about expectations Mm -hmm. because they would come to me with their smartphone and say hey i want to are we going to see this and it's like hey okay i understand why you're thinking that way but try and think about travel this way right or try and Whatever. I, yeah. As a guide, you try and impart whatever your philosophy or shindig is at the time. Absolutely. You just want to try and impart that. I didn't feel like I was able to do that, so yeah. I felt I wasn't doing my job that great. Yep. And then just the stamina of it, I broke down big time. We had five people get COVID, had to be left behind in one country, oh. and then catch up with us later. So you're kind of in one country dealing with logistics from another. Yeah. I yeah, can't we imagine. Were, These were adults, too, and you're right. dealing with... We're dealing with group. 18 to 20. Like, luckily, we weren't, like, going around at the time of COVID because that would have just been a whole other wrench in things. But I feel like most of the student expectations on the trip, because also the way that this tour was organized, it's supposed to be a, like, educational tour. So the students, part of their involvement on the tour is completing... Oh, what did we call it? It was basically coursework. So we would go to specific locations. We would do lectures about where we're going. We would talk to them about like local history, like socio socioeconomic issues, um, what's happening agriculturally in the region, like all of these different components to where at the end of the term, they would have to develop a project that would be presented to us at the very end. And we would give them a pass-fail sort of thing. That's kind of awesome, though. So they were actively engaged with the actual travel of it. Exactly. We found, like, that to be another way of just, like, getting buy-in from students. But in order to get that buy-in, the instructors on the trip have to be, like, fully on board on everything that's going on. And with the trip that I was on, day three of the trip, I had just about every student on our trip approaching me of like, hey, what are you doing about your co-leader? We're having issues with her. How are you going to fix this? Oh no. I would approach my co-leader and be like, hey, students are approaching me. And it was just the automatic defensiveness of like, well, they should approach me about blah, 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 blah. And so from like day three, trip was going downhill and very difficult to manage. But with that, great experiences in just all over Southeast Asia. And again, like with this trip, wealthy students, the trip for 90 days in Southeast Asia was $14,000. So you understanding travel over there, it's like you can live for three years on $14,000 in Southeast Asia. Part of my expectations of coming into it, we're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to teach you guys like how to travel cheap and like all the things that you can do for fun, like while scraping a dollar. See, you had your shtick too. Exactly. Yeah. But all of that was kind of blown out the window when we're doing these like really expensive tours and we never stayed at hostels. Like it was always hotels, family stays that were prearranged. So doing it in a comfortable fashion, again, limiting that uncomfortable nature, which I guess a lot of people think just traveling somewhere else, like that's already uncomfortable for a lot of people, which I get, but you don't have to fluff it up too much. Like you can let people struggle a little bit. Yeah. But they're not going to pay to go on a tour to struggle. That's the problem. And that's, but with that, like some of the most incredible experiences and connections that I've ever had were on that trip throughout 
Southeast Asia, and again, getting back to like the educational points of it, we had local partners that we would work with. On day four of this trip, we were working with an organization called Friendship Village that's based out of outside of Hanoi. It is a location that's devoted to helping anyone affected by the use of Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. And so Agent Orange, of course, being dropped by the U.S. over there for like an herbicide. It's a messes up your DNA and it goes generational. So, yep. And messes up your DNA. Yep. And so from that, you have a lot of disabilities that come from people that were affected during the war that's passed on to their children and grandchildren. So this place, Friendship Village, it's a lot of people that are our age that have severe mental disabilities, physical disabilities, all the way down to infants that they care for. And so hugely impactful for the students that we were with right from the beginning, just to set the tone of this trip and being like, hey. No fun allowed. No fun. (laughs) But also like recognize where you come from and the impact of where you come from. But one of the coolest things of traveling around Vietnam is like just the social difference of how the Vietnamese accept that what they call is the American war, not the Vietnam war. Right. Like they've accepted it. They're like, yeah, that's a thing that happened. Like, it's not your fault. It's the people that were in power at the time. And so they're just totally fine with everything. Vietnam's an amazing country. An I've incredible had country. Great experiences. Incredible there. people. Hanoi's amazing. And you can yeah. even go to that one little neighborhood. I don't know if you went there where the bomber is still in the middle of the lake in the middle yeah. of the neighborhood. Yeah. And you can see its wings sticking up and everything. Right. They have amazing museums there about the war. Yep. And just Southeast Asia in general, if you haven't been, it's just a total mine. Like, yeah. Everything is different from West. Like here it's so orderly. There everything happens on the street. The the traffic, it's the chaos. motorbikes. They can fit more on a motorbike than I can fit in the back of my pickup truck. I swear exactly. to God. Exactly. I've seen families of four with refrigerators on a motorbike. Yeah. I'm like, and I couldn't fit that much. It's doing everything you need to get by and not needing much, but still living a happy lifestyle. Yeah. We traveled Vietnam. We were basically four countries and roughly three weeks per country. That's nice because you settled in. Exactly. So you had enough time to like get familiar with your place compared to like your trip where it's just yeah we were a very week, a rapid week in Peru but moving all the time yep. and then we were three days in London three days in Paris mm-hmm. three days in Italy a night yeah. in Athens three days in Santorini a night in Athens just yeah. It's every time you turn around, you're going somewhere. Right. Did you feel fatigued on your trip or were you able to keep um, pace? I did pretty good. And I think it's just part of being used to the grind and understanding the grind. What like are you that's... saying? I'm soft, man? Or what? <laughs> I'm not you weren't drinking, soft. okay? <laughs> I wasn't drinking. That's also a big part of it. And you were relatively on the same time zone most yes. of the time, right? Yeah, so we weren't jumping we were like halfway Peru across the world. Europe was like... fine. but And then Kenya. Then we went to Thailand, yeah. Australia. So we were kind of just, yeah. Yeah. As far as like the fatigue, mostly, mostly just like emotional, just dealing with student interactions with my co-leader. That was the biggest thing. So really your co-guide was your biggest issue. It wasn't your guest. Yeah. Wow. Did you guys make it the whole time together? Uh, We, we did. No one left. Okay. Yep. Did you have Um, any uh, students? We, hook up on the trip or anything not that i know of okay so yeah. they kept it chill they kept it chill we did have one early dismissal which 
probably just for sake of company i'm not going to get into what okay <laughs> what that student did okay. but yeah had to get dismissed as soon as we got into china which we went Little from vietnam to china antics or something uh, like that yeah yeah, yeah. well we'll Little say that personal time that shouldn't have been seen <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh when you're a young man exploring yourself right but it's also there's social boundaries man there it's are. like come yeah. on that was yeah. hopefully he learned a lesson from i don't know getting expelled. we'll see it's a tough yeah. call to make to your parents i'll it tell is. you that yeah <laughs> um yeah, we went Vietnam up into China. Most of our time in China was spent down in the Yunnan province, so southwestern China. Um, Great Wall? Great Wall. We we were able to camp a night on the Great Wall. Okay, so I'm glad you said that because that mm-hmm. was my next question. I've never yeah. been to the Great Wall. Yeah. One of my travel friends went on a backpacking trip on the Great Wall. Mm-hmm. They were able to somehow get on it and hike on it and yep. then camp. Yep. She was like a little bit protective when I asked her about it. I think yeah. it's like travel writer stuff. She thought uh, I was going to scoop her or something. No. I'm like, no, I just really want to go do it. Right. So I never got the intel on how to do it. How did yeah. you? We had a local guide that. You're um, literally camping on the wall. Oh, yeah. Is the, the road of it made of cement or is that dirt? Uh, it's all large granite cobble. Okay. Yeah. And the equipment that, because, you know, we're over in China and they're like, here's your sleeping bag and your and your tent. And the sleeping bags were like 40 degree sleeping bags. And it got down to probably 25 that night. Like we're all just shivering, freezing, terrible night of camping, but great experience. The type two fun. Type two fun. That was my whole tour. Type two. Oh yeah. Lots of type two fun. Now I look back with some growth and some perspective in the moment. It was like getting on the plane and leaving my tour was one of the the best days. I was so happy. Well, I mean like Anthony Bourdain, right? he, um, when he was alive, he would always say that the two best parts of travel are the moment you leave your house and the moment you arrive back home. That's true. Yeah. Those are the two best parts. As long as you like where you live. Yeah. Yeah. I but there, that. there is always something about coming home. What's it for you? For me, it kicks in probably like th- three days before I know I'm going home. And it's just like, I need to be home. Like, I'm done. It's time to be home. It's just, I don't know, that feeling, the smells, like the smells of being home. And just being able to, like, come home, grab a beer, and sit on the couch and sleep in your own bed. Like, I always try to make sure that whenever I do leave, that my sheets on my bed are clean for when I get home. Good move. Because also one of the best things of the world. Come home to a clean come house. Come home, clean house, and clean, clean sheets. Bed, not have anything to do. Yeah. I have several it's thoughts perfect. on this. Now I definitely experience that. I put a lot of pressure on myself when I travel uh-huh. to push boundaries, get out there right. and make the best use of my time. Oh yeah. So I've learned over the years how to balance travel and vacation as I mm-hmm. would put it, but it's still, I, I put that. So when I, when it's time to come home, when I'm on my final day, like when I'm in Hawaii and I'm about to come home, I was a red eye flight home that final yep. day. I'm just like, Oh my God, get me home. Like yep. I do not want to wait around all day. Yep. I'm done. I'm ready. But I actually wrote a lot about this in the early part of my traveling career. I called it the post-trip blues because oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, when I first started traveling, I was still living at home with my, my mom mm-hmm. in southern New Jersey, and I was very unhappy there. Mm-hmm. So I would go on these work assignments for a week to the Caribbean or Mexico or wherever, yeah. and I would have just the most amazing time. I was yeah. tr- new to travel, so everything was so crazy. 
And then I would come home and I'm living with my mom again. Right. And but my, like a lot of that purpose of travel for you, like probably what instigated a lot of that travel was just to get away. Totally. Not, not to go see the place, but to not be where you were. Well, I would, I would disagree with that only because I, my timeline, I started travel writing when I lived in California, uh-huh. but I moved home to just, when you start travel writing, you make no money. Right. It's, it's a very difficult industry to base, like break yeah. into. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of other things when I first started travel writing. So mm-hmm. I worked at a writing center. I was freelancing for the local paper. And then occasionally I would take these travel trips, yeah. but I wanted to grow that segment of my business. Mm-hmm. So I kind of sacrificed my life in California to move home, live rent free and right. then pursue travel full time. So yes, I was motivated to travel because now I was living at home and I wanted to get out of there. Right. Of course. But also I knew I was there for a reason and I knew I would eventually move right. again. Yep. But just the act of the trip ending was so painful for me. Yeah. I would so just loathe the end of the trip. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I can't believe I have to go home now. Why don't I just, I remember when I was little, we tra- traveled quote unquote a lot with as a family, family yeah. vacations, wherever. And we went to the Caribbean a few times. And I remember saying to my mom, and she's told this story multiple times, when we were leaving some Caribbean island at one point, I just turned to her and I was like, didn't we have a great time here? She's yeah. like, yeah. I'm like, well, then why are we going home? Why don't we just live here if we like it better than <laughs> home? And she was trying to explain to me, okay, well, yeah. you can't. And that always just stuck with me. So I always struggled with the end of the trip. Uh, How do you deal with uh, like reverse culture shock? Of just being, for example, in Southeast Asia and then coming exactly. back. So home. like being long, being gone for so long. And then coming back to like, quote unquote, normalcy. Well, the way I fixed like, that problem was yeah. that I, I, I decided that I always wanted to love where I live because there are a lot of people that live where they live just because they grew up there right. or because that's where their job is or whatever. Yeah. And so they really struggle when they travel to come home, culture shock and just kind of, why am I back home yeah. now? This doesn't feel right. And so I'm like, I'm always going to love where I live. So when I come yeah. home, I'm stoked to be there and palisade is a great point of that whenever i come home now incredible place i'm like people especially when i'm in hawaii they're like oh that's a shame you're leaving i'm like no it's not not. i'm still gonna go home yeah i'm excited (laughs) you should come with me and check it out culture shock i don't know it's i guess it's been a while since i've felt that feeling yeah i've been fortunate enough to get around a bit yeah what about you that was we had part of our like protocol on our trip was like the last couple days before everyone was heading home getting back to the states we would have these these discussions about how to you know kind of reimmerse yourself into like normal life because it's going to be weird like it's not all different you know because like while you're traveling everything's different yeah like you don't know what's down that street you don't know what's in this city and you don't um, know what to expect the next day exactly whereas like when you come back home it's like you know where your room is you know where your friends live you know what restaurants you like to eat at and so everything's back to that idea of consistency and normalcy and it can be really really difficult for some people so we would have these long discussions like here's some things that you can do like just try to find new restaurants try to find some of the food that like you've become familiar with over here try to find it in your hometown like try to seek these places out to kind of bridge that gap of inconsistency and normalcy yeah one of the funniest things is that most people don't travel their own area no 
I think that's amazing advice. When you come back from a trip, just try and carry that same curiosity as you had on the road at home and say, yep. okay, instead of just getting back into my routine and yeah. doing the same three things I always do, how can I treat my home like I was a visitor and just seek out new things exactly. and be interested and try new things? I have to say the most difficult time I've ever had with like re-immersion was coming off the Grand Canyon. I bet. Um, 12 days on the oh, canyon. 21. Oh, 21. 21 days on the canyon where like you make your own food with the same 16 people for every meal. You sleep outside. Like I didn't bring a tent. Like I didn't do anything. It was just under the stars for 16 days, sleeping in the dirt, That's sleeping amazing. on the boat. You have the sounds of the river, sounds of nature, like no vehicle sounds, no none of the weird kind of inorganic like Noise urban pollution. noises got off the trip and every time I'm on the river i'm on the river the last day of the trip for me is just i turned into like stress ball mode because i know it's ending and i know that i'm going to be getting into a vehicle which the fastest i've gone for the last 21 days was eight miles an hour <laughs> that's an amazing perspective wow. and so when you get done going like on an average three miles an hour for 21 days and then you get into a vehicle where you're going 80 miles an hour down the interstate with other people going 80 miles an hour it's like you're in a fucking spaceship man <laughs> then you pull into a gas station and there's roller hot dogs just waiting for you like everything's so easy so weird i think that's the more shock that i experience is when i go on some kind of camping trip yeah and then i'm totally in nature and self-sufficient mm -hmm. and then come back to society yeah. where everything you just described happens to me because and more so that's the shock i would experience yeah, yeah like crazy we got back to flagstaff and we're staying in a hotel for a night and we all decided to go out to dinner as a group and we went to this thai restaurant and I remember sitting down in this restaurant and like the sounds of forks and knives and like glassware, like it just started echoing in my head and became, it's, I had an anxiety attack. I've never had an anxiety attack in my life. You and did? You had I had a full blown, like I was sitting there and I told the people I was with, like, I have to go right now. Just stood up, left. As soon as I went outside, like, puked in the middle of the street. What? Like, hadn't been <laughs> drinking anything. And, like, walked back to the hotel, like, took a cold shower, like, puked in the shower, laid down in bed, like, put on just white noise and laid there for, like, an hour. Wow. <laughs> like, I, this is hard. That was the night you got off the canyon. Yeah. Dang, boy. that's crazy. <laughs> Have you had anything like that happen no, to you yeah. ever before? Nope. Holy Nothing shit. ever before. Nothing ever since. Yeah. Well, maybe it's telling you something. Right? You need to just go become a hermit and live in About the desert. Your body needs. <laughs> I mean, three weeks is yeah. a long time without yeah. any modern things or distractions. And it's so nice. There's this guy, Gordon Hempton. Okay. He's actually uh, up in Seattle. He's a researcher. And his project, you could Google it, is called The Quietest Place on Earth. Okay. And his whole... Uh, project was to travel around the world to seek out the places that are the quietest mm -hmm. in terms of no man-made interference yeah. and places you expected that would be the most quiet like the middle of colorado for example right. actually weren't because every whatever it was 15 minutes you, you have get a plane planes. fly overhead yeah. and so air traffic and all these things so he made a list of the quietest places on earth and one of the top ones was uh, haleakala volcano on maui oh, okay 
he went down into the crater and he would there's pictures of him he's a total nerd he's got his yeah. little headset on with his boom mic and he's just <laughs> with his decibel meter yeah. and just and he'll just yeah. sit there for hours and he had some formula that he worked out where he would track like okay well on an average of every 10 minutes when i'm sitting here i i'm in this national park in state of washington or in yep. alaska or in colorado and we think this is nature but how often do i actually hear right. some kind of man-made noise yeah and it was shocking because yeah. there's not many places no that was kind of what i was talking about with alaska it's there's places where you think nature is very controlled nowadays especially think about oh, yeah. national parks yeah. all the roads are paved you think you're really getting out there but you're not getting that far yeah. from the influence of society right and so that's a cool project, the quietest yeah. place on earth. No, it was incredible. Like when we were up working Alaska, like it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. One of the sites in particular, like we're in this area, it's called Squintna, and it's about 80 miles north of Alaska, or not of Alaska, of Anchorage. And uh, had to fly in, you're on dirt strip, land, and then we were staying in a lodge. And it's like, okay, we're in this lodge, like this is kind of weird. And people would just like fly in regularly to this lodge and it's the only thing there is just this lodge. And we were doing a diesel fuel and aircraft fuel removal project back during world war two. Squintna was airstrip for refuels that were going up to Nome. And then from Nome, people would fly over across the Pacific, like over into Russia and like, down to like Midway Island and that was one of the last fuel stops to get over to Eastern Europe. In Squintna there were these massive fuel tanks, probably I don't know, three hundred thousand gallons worth of fuel. They all leaked. That well no, when the project was decommissioned, they were advised to open all the valves on all oh the tanks. God. And so everything's just dumped into the ground. And so we're out there doing this dirty dirt dig removal and there's always some sort of associated landfill with these kind of projects of just where people just go dump their trash and so we're out there doing this dig we're right next to the squintna river like beautiful beautiful area bear tracks every morning everywhere moose tracks and one of the local old timers he comes up and starts talking to us one day. He's like, oh, yeah, if you guys get the chance, across the river about 20 yards into the forest, there's an old D9 bulldozer. I can't get it to run, but if you guys can get it out, that'd be cool. <laughs> and so we went tromping through one day, and sure as shit, there's just this dozer just sitting there all overgrown, trees growing through it. and Still there, you think? Still there. Oh, oh yeah, wow. it's still there. That's yeah. amazing. And it, it's there's that kind of stuff everywhere up in Alaska, mostly just with the military history. Just up left. There. And it's you think you're in the middle of nowhere. And then there's like a weird concrete structure. People have been here. And it's like, yeah. okay. Where can I get away? Yeah. A lot of the uh, Pacific Islands are like that because same military bases, exactly. the midway yeah. types. And what they did was they just drove the equipment into the ocean. Yep. And so now you can scuba dive at a lot of those islands and see yeah. like a tank at the bottom because they there. didn't want to give the technology away. So they just drove it in. Yep. It's freaking crazy. It's so man. bizarre. Well, you've lived a very interesting life, buddy. 
It's still going, hopefully. Still going, mate. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to see what you do next. Yeah, I am too. I've enjoyed hearing your travel conversations, and it's been great getting to know you more. I feel yeah. like you're an onion. I'm peeling the layers on. So I hope you come back and tell <laughs> us more stories. We just did two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. Crazy. Goes by think, fast. Like, like I was thinking about this as we were talking this whole time, just with talking about cell phones and like the distraction of everything and distraction of life. It's like people rarely get the opportunity to just sit down and have a two hour long conversation. Never, never, not and, even with your girlfriend or parents. Cause there's always right. something chiming in your pocket or like, we're just sitting here chatting, drinking wine and it's so good. I'm glad you enjoyed the yeah. experience. Yeah. And so couldn't thank you enough. Thanks man. Yeah. I hope we can do it again sometime. Yes. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Merrill Appreciate Wallace. it. Bye everyone. Yes, now I'm riding the terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapon. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled. Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Round house into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down in my side, I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my serious strike. This is it, take the title, disappear in the night. To the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out, travel to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole